0: B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth.
1: I find myself all the time looking at the NFL. And asking myself, why can't the NBA, why can't Major League Baseball, why can't college football, for crying out loud, replicate what is happening in the NFL? Think about it. Like, we were talking about this on yesterday's show, and I was left going, you know what, this is uh, 100% of what the NFL is about. Like, the the fact that we've got parity in these playoffs, the fact that we all don't agree on who's going to win These playoff games coming up this weekend is phenomenal. I mean, it says so much about the NFL. You have eight teams remaining. You're down to the Elite Eight. And, you know, you could see these teams. Of course, the NFL does. But would anybody be shocked if the New York Giants, the 9-7 and Giants, knock off the 14-win Eagles? No, nobody's going to be shocked by that because it's the NFL, even though the game's in Philadelphia on Saturday. Would anybody be shocked if Dallas beats San Francisco? If the Bengals upset the Bills, or even if the Jaguars beat Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, nobody would be shocked by that. We have seen things over the years, and we see things throughout the duration of the NFL season that make it possible, that make it so. I mean, it was a it was a twenty seven nothing deficit that the Jaguars faced last week in the Wild Card weekend, the Super Wild Card weekend, uh, and the Jaguars came back and won the game. It's remarkable to me that the other sports haven't, and remarkable in a a bad way, that the other sports haven't yet figured out that the key to compelling, entertaining, engaging live sports programming isn't flashy uniforms, although it helps. It's not rabid fan bases, although the fan bases in Kansas City and Philadelphia and Buffalo in in particular are fantastic. Uh, It's... It's not uh, you know, just history that the NFL's been around a long time and has some momentum. I- I'm sure that helps, but that's not the secret sauce. The secret sauce for the NFL is the fact that we don't know. We we have two nine win teams playing on Saturday, the Jaguars and the Giants, who have at different points of the season looked fantastic and terrible. And the Giants last week beat Minnesota. They upset the Vikings, right? And uh, I got a whole bunch of people who know football, who know more football than me. Nick Aliotti, the former University of Oregon defensive coordinator, he texted me yesterday. He likes the Giants over the Eagles, you know. And and I don't know who you like in the Jaguars Chiefs game, but it's going to be compelling. I know the Bengals Bills game is going to be compelling too. Twelve win team against a thirteen win team, a rematch on Sunday at noon on CBS of the game that was the Monday Night Football game that Demar Hamlin. Uh, was injured in and had to leave and got CPR and got an AED and went to the hospital and the whole country was holding its breath. I mean, the NFL gets it, okay? And so now we're looking at another college football season where we could have a a, a duplicate of what we just endured, watching Georgia run away 65-7 to in the national championship game uh, over TCU. The division in college football with the haves and the have-nots the division of those who can actually contend, those who think they can contend, is remarkable. Again, not in a good way. Think about it. How many teams really, at this point, have a chance to say, hey, we got a, we got a shot to win the national championship in college football next season? A lot of teams are going to tell you that, but what is it really? Maybe six or eight teams? Maybe ten if you're really expanding the net and going, okay, we're going to leave room for a Cinderella? Like, you know, Cinderella be like the the number eight team in the country. Like, it's just, it's kind of it's kind of sad to me that college football, it got so greedy and so drunk on itself that it didn't pay attention to its older brother, the NFL, and what it was trying to teach it. What works in the NFL is parity. How do they foster parity? Well, the league itself, uh, you know, schedules based on your prior year performance. The Super Bowl winner, uh, is is set up to have the most difficult path to get back to the Super Bowl the next year. The team that won the fewest games not only gets the number one draft pick, they get a soft schedule in the ensuing season. What the NFL is trying to do is keep everybody engaged, to, to make uh, everybody feel like they're have and no have-nots, and to leave it to coaching performance, player performance, executive performance, to be the great separating factors. There's a hard salary cap in the NFL. There's no salary cap in college football. And with NIL and the transfer portal, you have unrestricted free agency and no salary cap. It's going to be a problem. And and look, even if your team is Georgia or your team is Alabama or your team is Oregon outspending others, uh, you know, or their collective outspending others in the Pac-12 footprint, I think you, we all have to recognize that there is a problem in college athletics that needs addressing. It's not just the expansion to 12 teams that's going to level the playing field and make everybody think they have a chance. Hell, in the NFL, they could expand the playoffs, add four more teams, and we'd all go, you know what? Yeah, one of those four teams might get there. Like you know, they had the same amount of money to spend at the beginning of the year. They had the you know the same number of home games. They had the same uh, you know opportunity that. Everybody else had, and that's what makes the NFL inherently interesting to me, especially on a weekend like this. In the NBA, you look at, like, the second round of the NBA playoffs, you don't, you don't get big surprises. You get the better, higher-ranked team with the better regular season record winning a lot of those. A lot of the first-round series are jokes. It's just, you know, one team kind of going through the motions, the other team trying really hard to win a couple games. Uh, in the NFL, they get it. In college football, they do not. I do think we're going to have a reckoning if, the market continues to give us 65 to 7 in the national chip game and the separation with four or five or six of the teams that uh, you know habitually and chronically play in the playoff, you know, it's Ohio State, it's Alabama, it's Georgia for a period. Oklahoma got in there a couple of times. LSU got in there. Uh, but by and large, we're seeing the same teams. Clemson, the same teams over and over again. Pac12 has had two participants in the history of the college football playoff. Oregon got to the national title game. Beat Florida State and then met Ohio State in the title game and lost. And Washington met Alabama in the opening round and lost. That's it. Three games total. The Pac-12 was played in the history of the college football playoff. There's something wrong with that, and it's not just going to be solved by expanding the playoff field from four teams to 12 teams. 12 teams is going to make us feel like, hey, look, conference champ got in there. Let's see how you stack up. Uh, But I think beyond that, we got to pay attention. And I want you to think about that this weekend. Like, look, I love the Niners, Cowboys. I think the Bills probably are going to beat the Bengals, but I don't know. The Eagles, Giants, that's a question mark for me. I like the Chiefs over the Jaguars. I think the Chiefs are the best team in the AFC, but we're going to find out. Uh, But I wouldn't be surprised by anything this weekend. I wouldn't be surprised if I get every one of those right or everyone wrong or something in between. And college football doesn't have that on the NFL. And if it doesn't figure it out, we're all going to start tuning out to the college football playoff in the way that the entire Pacific time zone and western part of the United States did, and frankly the way all of America did uh, this last championship game as TCU just got pantsed on national TV by a Georgia team that's spending hand over fist in recruiting, has a collective that's going to outspend its opposition, and plays in a conference that's funding its members at a level that others are not. Everybody wants to talk about, hey, you know what, college football should separate off into 40 or 60 teams that, all can compete in the upper division. Uh, yeah, I guess, in theory, that's already kind of happening with the Power Five conferences. But the bigger takeaway I have is, even if you did that, even if you tried to level the playing field and say, okay, 50 or 60 of these teams are going to play, unless you put some kind of structure in that uh, you know creates parity and fosters parity in the way that the NFL has with the draft and a hard salary cap and a lot of rules and a scheduling – uh, I think you're really just banging your head against the wall, and we're going to continue to see Ohio State, we're going to continue to see Georgia, Alabama, and a handful of others get into the Final Four. Um, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, uh, it, this is a, this is a meritocracy in a lot of ways, but I think the NFL, this weekend, pay attention when you're watching these games. And you tell me if the NFL still isn't doing something to make itself king that the others are not we got a great show for you today. We're going to go to Arizona next as Hode Rabino, the beat reporter for Arizona State, is going to talk to us about Kenny Dillingham and the red-hot Bobby Hurley Arizona State basketball team who plays tonight against UCLA. you got the BFT. Leave it here.
0: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: Our next guest is the premier reporter on the Arizona State beat. He covers football. He covers basketball. He covers all things Sun Devils. Hode Rubino is the publisher of Devils Digest. The schedule came out yesterday, Hode. Uh, Arizona State, schedule front-loaded. Um, you know, I tried to tip you off about this in print, writing about it, but what was uh, your reaction as, as you saw the schedule?
2: Yeah, well, it was, uh, you know, pretty smooth. I mean, folks knew there was going to be eight home games, so that wasn't, um, you know, any uh, really shocking news or anything like that. And you uh, broke the news yesterday about um, having uh, really front-loaded in the month of September. That's the point where, where some fans were uh, disappointed, if not flat-out mad. But, uh, look, I mean, when you have eight home games, I mean, there's going to be one month that's going to be uh, off-kilter in terms of how many home games you're going to have. And... You know, when you look at uh, November, when he got those back-to-back uh, road games um, at Utah and at UCLA, and then he got Oregon at home, um, I think uh, building some equity, so to speak, with a lot of those home games in September, October can can really come in handy when he got a murder's row in November. So that's that's my take.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm for Kenny Dillingham from my viewpoint. Can you know you you were there, you saw the introductory news conference, you can you mm-hmm. can feel the electricity. I think this schedule kind of compounds it because if I'm an Arizona State fan, I'm looking at the schedule going, hey, outside of that SC game in week four, it looks like it's set up for like a nice start. Like I wouldn't be surprised at four and two or five and one out of the gates. Yeah,
2: I absolutely absolutely agree. And uh, somebody brought up an excellent point uh, saying, too bad this is a schedule that's happening in a rebuilding year uh, for Kenny Dillingham rather than maybe a season down the road where Kenny Dillingham has such an established roster that's legitimately going for a Pac-12 championship, maybe even beyond that. But uh, no, no, nonetheless, uh, like you said, if you can build momentum and confidence early on with all those home games, um, you, you really can maybe have some uh, momentum that can re- that, that can really carry on in, in, into the rest of the season. So honestly, um, as much as uh, you'd love to have, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, a front-loaded, Uh, heavy uh, home game schedule uh, when you have a team that's absolutely uh, loaded, uh, embarrassment of riches in each and every um, position. On the other hand, if you're really rebuilding a program from the ground up, you're having uh, just about uh, 40 newcomers uh, on the roster, then maybe this uh, schedule that does allow you uh, just to feel more comfortable and not really uh, leave uh, the confines of Tempe early on, let alone often, period, is uh, really what uh, the doctor had, had ordered um, and th- another thing that I do like about the schedule is the bye week comes right smack in the middle six games um, you know pass and six games ahead of the, of the bye week so again I think in many ways that uh, this schedule does work out uh, re- really nicely for Arizona State
1: we're talking to Hode Rubino who is the longest tenured Sun Devil beat writer DevilsDigest.com, uh, if you want to read uh, their work, uh, you guys do a terrific job, by the way, Hode, in, in covering Arizona State and in, in the conference as well. Um, the, the, Gill- the Dillingham enthusiasm, you okay. were there, like he, you know, we made fun of him a little bit because he was very <laughs> emotional, uh, but I get it. Like, he's home. He wants to put a fence around that area, and he wants to recruit the state of Arizona. How has that gone over so far early in his tenure?
2: I think it, uh, it really has, has gone as well as well spec. Now, I think realistically uh, for him to try to reel in the uh, big fish in his backyard from the 2023 class, so that was really close to being mission impossible because, as you know, any new coaching staff that, that does uh, come into place is already behind the eight ball with the current recruiting class because relationships have been established a year or two prior with uh, a lot of other schools. And obviously when you have the, uh, the four or five-star uh, recruits, and you really have programs literally from coast to coast uh, coming coming into Maricopa County and uh, trying, trying to recruit those uh, players and doing so for a year, a year or two. But uh, I feel that uh, in the 24 class and really 25, 26 class, uh, he has definitely uh, done a great job early on identifying uh, those uh, in-state recruits that, that he wants to target in, the, in those classes. He had a brilliant um, idea to actually uh, utilize... A, um, a visit, uh, an unofficial visit, I should say, for the uh, 24, 25, 26 class, and actually conducted a scavenger hunt. Now, obviously, the caveat was the scavenger hunt had to be on campus so you don't violate in recruiting rules, but nonetheless, you had a bunch of uh, in-state recruits uh, really enjoying uh, getting to know the campus, having fun, obviously having those natural competitive juices flow, and uh, then uh, at the end of the scavenger hunt, you had the quote-unquote more traditional uh, recruiting visit where he's sitting down with coaches, maybe maybe watching films, uh, really really touring the facilities. So it's not only that uh, he's uh, definitely uh, putting some action behind his words, but also he's being creative in the way he, he really goes about targeting the inside recruits I think has been uh, really, really intriguing. We'll find out uh, a couple of years from now if those efforts uh, have uh, really paid off for Arizona State and Kenny Dillingham.
1: Yeah, uh, you pointed out on your Twitter, uh, devilsdigest.com Twitter, at Devil's Digest, uh, that Arizona State has had three 10-win seasons this century, and two of them took place in 2007-2013. Both of those mm-hmm. years had eight-game home schedules. Uh, the Devils have got a eight-game home schedule again. Ten wins feels like a reach in year one, obviously, but <laughs> bowl eligibility, is that it's kind of the bar? Is that what, what Kenny Dillingham is chasing in year one?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that uh, as much as Ken Dillingham it really is a true dreamer uh, when, when you hear him talk, when you hear him really set the goals that he has for Arizona State. I think it's realistic uh, knowing that uh, for this team to win six games, to be bowl eligible six and, and winning six uh, games, really be, be doubling the win total from last year. So that's definitely uh, measured progress over there. But uh, I really uh, feel that when you have uh, eight, eight, eight home games, uh, and you have, let's say, you know, four road Games, three of them very challenging out of Washington, at Utah, UCLA, but you also have a game against Cal, which I think is a, a winnable contest. So I think that when you look at the totality of that campaign, winning just six games, I I really don't feel that it's something that's absolutely beyond the reach of, of Kenny, uh, Kenny Dillingham and uh, and, uh, and this roster. So uh, I, I think absolutely that um, that would be the goal. I'm not saying that folks would throw parades uh, up and down Mill Avenue if Arizona State was bowl eligible at the end of the 2023 season but but nonetheless in terms of just uh, baby steps as long as they're baby steps in the right direction I think uh, if you're Kenny Dillingham that's what you really want for this program
1: I looked up I was at a restaurant the other day and Herm Edwards was on the TV and he was he was <laughs> talking about the NFL and everybody was laughing like you know and he's just right back into character how do Arizona State fans view Herm now when you know in the rearview mirror yeah, I mean, the
2: reason I was laughing, John, is because uh, I definitely heard from Arizona State fans that are, de- that are cringing uh, when, when Herm uh, Edwards is right now on, on TV, uh, you know, really breaking down the NFL, maybe talking about some topics that might hit just a little too close to home in terms of, in terms of tenure at Arizona State. And look, I mean, it really was maybe an out-of-the-box idea by Athletic Director Ray Anderson uh, to bring the quote-unquote pro model. You bring Herm Edwards, you bring a bunch of coaches that either played or coached uh, in, in the NFL, and you just create this environment that really would be attractive to recruits uh, because you definitely have that NFL credibility. Uh, your, your biggest mantra would be, hey, we've been there, done that, at the next level. why don't you you come play for Arizona State and we'll show you the way uh, to 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 achieving those goals of of playing on Sundays. But uh, I just feel that uh, ultimately when you give um, the same amount of respect and maybe less accountability for kids that are 22 years old as if they were full-grown men playing in the NFL, I think that's uh, basically a, a theory or I would say a philosophy that, that can really come back and bite you, and I think that's exactly what, what, what really, really what happened with Arizona State. You also had uh, very ultra-aggressive uh, uh, recruiting practices that obviously landed uh, ASU in an ongoing incidentally investigation, an investigation that, unfortunately, is going to result in penalties with uh, a, a coaching staff that all but one um, you know, were not even here in Tempe when all these uh, recruiting begins uh, went on, and you really kind of wonder, when those sanctions do come down, how much does that impede the progress that Kenny Dillingham wants to instill in Tempe? But that's maybe a discussion for another day. But uh, the, the, to answer your question, John, uh, I am ASU fans are absolutely uh, not happy when they see Rome Edwards uh, on, on, on their TV on ESPN, and uh, wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them are just uh, changing the dial, so to speak, when that does take place.
1: Yeah, and, and the, you know, you touch on this, but the the potential sanctions. They never mm-hmm. feel fair to me. It always feels like people who had nothing to do with it get punished, and yeah. I, I, just, I'm encouraged a little bit because the NCAA is so toothless that maybe, maybe they don't, uh, they don't end up really coming down with the hammer here. But is everybody bracing, or you know, not sure what's going to happen? What's kind of the sentiment when it comes to that?
2: I think the encouragement, uh, John, that folks uh, feel over here is that Arizona State and let's let's call a spade a spade really offered four sacrificial lambs in terms of four assistant coaches that were dismissed uh, from the school just because of their involvement uh, with the, with those uh, alleged uh, recruiting violations. So Arizona State basically would get information from the NCAA in some cases, really in the infancy of investigations, uh, basically hearing the NCAA tell them, look, we have overwhelming amounts of evidence on Coach X and Coach Y and Coach Z. Okay, it's up to you about what course of action you want to take at this point, but we're just presenting the evidence that we have to this point, and we may find more evidence down the road. And it really was not so much Athletic Director Ray Anderson, but University President Dr. Michael Crow that uh, decided to be proactive and to show uh, that uh, good faith effort, dismissing really three coaches within three days into full camp uh, back in 2021. And he thought that by, by that action, that uh, this is something that when the sanctions do come down, that the NCAA would actually take that into consideration. And I know there's two schools of thoughts out there that one, are, one is saying, don't cooperate with the NCAA whatsoever because it's not going to pay off for you when, when it's time for that notice of allegation to come down and the subsequent sanctions. Another is saying, why not be the odd ball out, but maybe in a positive manner, where you actually are, are cooperating with NCAA every, every step of the way, and you are showing that if I'm taking all these steps, which are, you know, really I, you call like self-imposed uh, sanctions to, to some degree, uh, is that really going to help me down the road when, when, when the sanctions are, are, are handed out? So, I think if there's any encouragement, uh, a, hope, um, a sign of hope, that uh, folks in Tempe would have would be that. Now, I think that maybe the elephant in the room over here is, okay, if you're Arizona State and you took all those actions in terms of dismissing coaches, why did you not take a um, uh, self-imposed postseason ban prior to the 2022 season when you knew that this program was going nowhere? I mean, Herm Edwards actually did want to uh, leave back in spring of uh, 2022 because the mess was just absolutely undeniable and really too much to take. And you hope that maybe when it comes to the specific punishment of a postseason ban that this doesn't come uh, back to bite Arizona State for not being proactive in that matter. But again, um, I think that if there's any uh, a really chance of hope, chance of leniency from the NCAA is the fact that Arizona State uh, did dismiss uh, pretty much uh, half of its staff just because of the NCAA investigation. And uh, we'll see, maybe in a few months, who knows about the timetable here, if uh, those uh, proactive actions from almost two years ago are really going to help Arizona State and get, um, I'm not going to say a slap on the wrist, but maybe uh, a less severe uh, volume of sanctions.
1: Our guest is Hode Rabino, Devil's Digest. Uh, he is the longest-tenured beat reporter on the Arizona State Beat. Now, Hode, I want to talk some basketball with you. Will you stick around for another segment and talk a little bit about Bobby Hurley and what's going on in the Pac-12 with basketball? Absolutely, John. More with Hode Rubino next. Back to the bald-faced truth
0: with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: Our guest is uh, the premier reporter on the Arizona State Beat. Uh, he works. He is the publisher and works covering Arizona State football, basketball, all things Arizona State. Hode Rubino with us. Nice enough to stick around for a second segment. Uh, before we get into the basketball, just a general sentiment on the football schedule. Thumbs up, thumbs down from Arizona State fans, or is it somewhere in between?
2: I think maybe in some respects, John, it is somewhere in between because even though folks knew that this eight home game schedule was coming, they did not like uh, the, the fact that it was uh, front-loaded with so many home games in September, where, as you know, uh, it's not exactly Chamber of Commerce weather uh, over here in Tempe. But uh, I think uh, for a team that's really in rebuilding mode, if they can really capitalize on that plethora of home games uh, in in September and build some positive momentum, I think uh, it's something that, that they really can help uh, down the road. So... Uh, if fans have any caveat, maybe that's the caveat uh, that they have. But I think ultimately they realize that uh, when you have a murder's row of a schedule in November at Utah, at UCLA and hosting Oregon, if you can uh, really build up uh, some games in the W column in September and October, uh, you can withstand what should be a very challenging November, especially for a program that with with a brand-new coaching staff and just about 40 newcomers on the roster.
1: I'm looking at the basketball standings, and I don't want to say it's a surprise because Bobby Hurley's a good coach. And, yeah, Arizona State has been good in recent years, but felt like he was coaching for his job a little bit this season. How has he performed in your eyes? And, and they have a big game tonight against UCLA.
2: I think, John, what really differentiates uh, this uh, Bobby Hurley team uh, from the last two years, which were extremely uh, uh, disappointing uh, in, in back-to-back losing seasons, is that, first of all, Hurley did realize that locker room chemistry really has to trump almost everything else. And he realizes that he really had a lot of locker room cancers, which I know is maybe one of the worst cliches in sports, but nonetheless, that is something that definitely manifested itself in every adverse way uh, imaginable for for Arizona State in the last two seasons. So when uh, he uh, went to to the transfer portal, he uh, just made sure that, Aside from the raw X's and O's elements there of one player or another that their personality is going to be one that's really going to mesh uh, really well uh, with, the, with the rest of the locker room. And I really like the fact that uh, three of the transfers, uh, two of them are brothers, uh, Des- Desmond and Devin and and, uh, Cambridge, you know, they came from different programs. And the third uh, player, uh, so, uh, Senator Warren Washington, and you probably remember, played for Oregon State when he started out his, uh, his college career. Uh, actually was a teammate of Desmond Cambridge in Nevada and by default knew his brother Devin uh, really well. So it's almost as if he had that built-in cohesiveness with three of the transfers that, that, that came in. So, again, I can't speak enough for the great job uh, Hurley did in that regard. The other job is finally playing defense. I mean, I know a lot of folks uh, love the uh, Guard U team of 2017-2018 that went undefeated in, in non-conference play but then in Pac-12 uh, slate. Uh, finished, I believe, was eighth, eighth, or ninth in the conference. Uh, just squeaked in on, on on selection Sunday. And Bobby Hurley, for most of his career in Tempe, really, really has not been known to uh, to really produce good defensive teams. And this year, I think he's he finally uh, turned the corner. I think part of it is going back to the player selection, but another part, and you know, Bobby Hurley would be the first one to say that, is that his right hand man, uh, Jermaine Kimbrough has really been able to effectively instill a a, a very strong defensive unit in Tempe ever since the season started. I mean, Arizona State has been the top five, sometimes the top three defensive teams in the Pac-12, and that's really uncharted territory on steroids when you talk about Arizona State basketball. So I think those two aspects have worked very, very well for for Bobby Hurley and it seems right now uh, second in the Pac-12, 15-3 record uh, overall, uh, is really an absolute direct byproduct of uh, all the efforts that he put in in the preseason assembling this team.
1: How big would a win over UCLA feel for Arizona State men's basketball, Bobby Hurley's future, his contract status, all of that?
2: Yeah, I think absolutely it's going to be a a statement game uh, without a doubt. Uh, Arizona State uh, just a few weeks ago uh, played another top five team, their in-state rival Arizona. Uh, it definitely was a, a, a tale of a tale of two halves, where um, ASU, as unfortunately have done many times this year, uh, really uh, put themselves in a, in a hole at halftime. And even though uh, I think I think maybe they're uh, five and one or six and one uh, in uh, halftime uh, deficit comeback wins uh, against a team like U of A, that that doesn't always work all that well. Even though uh, they did, I think uh, bring back the deficit to, to only two points until they pretty much ran out of gas, but even in that second half against U of A, uh, Arizona State, at least at that point, held the uh, University of Arizona to the lowest second half point total. I think believe it was, a, believe it was a 24 points. So now when you got UCLA, you got a team that's just as good as Arizona, may, maybe even better, judging by the latest results over there of, of the Wildcats. Now you want to see ASU, can they play that, that complete game against not only the best team in the Pac-12, one, one of the best teams in the country, um, you know period so uh it's great that Arizona state is doing very well um overall this year but when you look at the three losses one loss is to Arizona which I guess you can understand uh you know at least back then the, you know they were a top five team themselves and the other two losses are uh, really head scratching um, at San Francisco a 37 point uh, out loss and early on in the season they an overtime lost to the to Texas southern Texas southern I'm sorry so basically uh you you really need to show that um, this uh, record that you have to date is not all smoke and mirrors. And trust me, there are folks not only nationally, but even here locally that are really uh, questioning, is Arizona State as good as the record shows? A win against uh, UCLA uh, can can definitely be a statement. And I don't know if so much of Bobby Hurley is really on the hot seat, but maybe really to cement uh, even more uh, his uh, stature with the program, and really show that, again, he is able to take this program to new new heights that he hasn't been able to take it so far. I think I think a win against UCLA can definitely do that. But I told folks today, I said, look, uh, even if you win against UCLA, you need to come off that high really quickly because USC is a darn talented team and you're playing them just uh, 40 hour to 48 hours later. So I know a split, uh, if it's a win against UCLA and a loss against USC, won't be all bad news, but uh, if some some way, somehow, ASU you can sweep the L.A. schools uh, this weekend, uh, it's actually going to be uh, one of those uh, moments that you can look back to maybe five years from now and say, yep, yeah, this is when Bobby Hurley really really took his program to, to a whole different level and maybe to a level that the fan base has been yearning for uh, ever since uh, Bobby Hurley was hired.
1: Most, most college campuses in the Pac-12 football drives the bus. Is basketball mm-hmm. right now threatening to kind of – Take center stage with, with, you know, especially if they win tonight against UCLA, and as you said, go into this USC game on Saturday. I got to think it's going to be rocking.
2: Yeah, I, I think that um, you know ASU is still going to be a football school, uh, you know, for, for years and years to come. But Bobby Green has definitely proven, uh, even earlier in his career at Arizona State, that when he produces good teams, when he produces NCAA tournament teams, uh, the fans will definitely show up. But uh, he did have uh, back back to back years. Where we averaged uh, 10,000 um, uh, fans in attendance, and aside from uh, Arizona and maybe UCLA, uh, there really wasn't any program that really, that really reached those numbers. So I think the, the excitement uh, concerning the program is, is definitely there. I mean, I'm expecting at least 10,000, maybe even close to 12,000 uh, when, when they do play UCLA. So uh, I don't know if it's really going to surpass football. But football right now is in a stage where, you know, it's a long offseason. Sure, there's some excitement, and maybe the excitement is going to grow a little more in March when, when, when they have spring practice, but there's really no games to point to. There's really no highlight films under Kenny Dillingham that you can just play over and over and over in social media. Basketball is really more the here and now excitement, which, again, I wouldn't say surpass football, but I think that the game against UCLA is definitely going to be an excellent opportunity, an opportunity that I think is going to be materialized when you can see the community really coming out in droves and uh, and, and, and supporting ASU. I mean, I've been covering the team since uh, uh, 2000, and I remember the, the James the James Harden years where even they had a, a random game in the NIT that, 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 that was sold out with uh, 14,000 fans. So uh, I don't think it's out of the question at all that uh, it's going to be a great support for Arizona State, but they just really have to show that they can can get over the hump and really start beating the big boys uh, in the Pac-12, especially when the game is is on campus.
1: Hode Rubino, I appreciate your expertise. Keep doing what you're doing. For people listening, at Devil's Digest on Twitter. Hode, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, John. Really good stuff from Hode Rubino. Uh, Enjoyed that interview. For people who are interested in Pac-12 basketball, Arizona State and Bobby Hurley, they got it going, but can they beat UCLA tonight? This conference is a little messy right now. I want you to leave it locked in. We have so much more ahead on this great Thursday.
0: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: Stop for a second to uh, to tell you how much I appreciate that you're out there. I mean, I know people say stuff like that all the time. Like you get on an airplane and they say, "Hey, we know you have choices. Thank you for flying with us today." Um, I I have to tell you, like I I think about this all the time. It's a thought I had this morning as I was sort of prepping for the show and trying to, you know, figure out what we can leave out, what we can leave on the cutting room floor, and whatnot. Uh, I don't want to leave this one on the cutting room floor. I really appreciate that you listen to this show. I appreciate that you work me and this radio show and our staff and Peter and Judah and Stephen and everything that we try to do, uh, that you work us into your day. It means a lot to me. And, you know, I know this is a little inside baseball, but, you know, it it was last March that I decided to leave the newspaper. And go out on my own and and go rogue and part of it was I feel like I I feel like I was just at the point of my career where I wanted to go say more do more be in charge of what I'm writing about um, not be beholden to anything and just kind of write unfiltered and unencumbered and you know I get that on this radio show on a daily basis and it's not lost on me that you're here for it um we're you know this week alone we've We've talked about the release of the Pac-12 schedule. We've talked about how big college basketball is going to be uh, this, you know, February and March for the Pac-12 conference, how important and how wild it feels. And we've talked about family and we've talked about, you know, the Dallas Cowboys kicker and we've talked about all sorts of things. But I would be remiss if I didn't touch on the idea that I'm just grateful for the platform. I'm grateful that you're part of it. It wouldn't be the same without you. Literally, I'd be talking to myself and that would be, that sounds a little crazy. Um, the earlier this week, I, I got a chance, uh, you know, I don't know if people know this, so I don't know if people care about it, but the Associated Press Sports Editors Organization is the organization of all the newspapers across the country, okay, and it's it's uh, an organization that, that uh, promotes good journalism, good sports journalism, great sports writing, and uh, all the newspapers I've worked for over the years have been part of the APSE family, and at the end of the year, Every spring, you know, after December closes, the APSE holds their annual writing contest. And, uh, you know, they they uh, solicit um, entries from the newspapers around the country. And, you know, I've enjoyed a lot of success in that contest over the years and been named National Sports Columnist of the Year a couple of times and, and all of that. But um, it meant a lot to me that the APSE, the Associated Press Sports Editors, recognized johnconzano.com as a member uh, just this last December. I tweeted it out. I I don't think people really understood what it meant, but it was validation. It was validation for the website. It was validation for going rogue. It was basically uh, all the newspaper editors at the Papers That Matter across the country recognizing that, hey, you don't necessarily have to be working for a traditional newspaper to do... You know, newspaper work. And in fact, a lot of the papers across the country are just no longer doing the great work that made them great once upon a time. The enterprise writing, there's a real shortage of it. The institutional knowledge, we've watched it go by the wayside. I mean, hell, people in Eugene know what happened to the Eugene Register Guard and what they can see happening across the country to newspapers and sports writing and uh, reporting in general. And there's just a real shortage. And it's never been more evident, to me, then maybe last summer when USC and UCLA announced they're defecting to the Big Ten Conference. And everybody's freaking out, and everybody's anxious, and everybody's worried. And I'm looking around going, man, there is a real shortage of sourced, in-depth reporting analysis. Like, sourced reporting. The kind of reporting earlier in this week, as we talked on the show about, you know, the Pac-12 schedule is going to be... In, you know the ability to be sourced enough to get to the schedule before it goes public and reveal and shed light on the voting process and how there were eight athletic directors that voted for the schedule that we all saw unveiled on Wednesday on uh, the Pac-12 networks and four who didn't vote for it who voted for other versions and other models of the schedule and hey what's really happening with expansion and what's really happening with media rights and and longtime listeners of this show know that you can come here and you're not going to get nonsense. You're not going to get a guy sitting in his garage drinking a beer telling you what he thinks about sports while he's tickling his navel. Okay, that's not me. I'm not tickling my navel over here. That's what I'm saying. But what you're going to get is you're going to get great interviews. You're going to get in-depth reporting. You're going to know before anybody else knows. Like people may speculate, people may guess, a lot of that going on in today's media world. But you're not going to get sourced, in-depth reporting, analysis, the interviews. You're not getting it anywhere else. You're getting it here, right here on this radio station that you're listening to, and you're getting it in print form at johnconzano.com. And that's why I tell you, get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you is fine by me, but let's do this. Because the noise out there, for me, is a little unbearable. And it's it's too much guessing. It's too much people throwing crap against the wall. It's too much people – like, it's literally people who I know are not talking to the key principles involved in these stories, and they're, they're trying to report on it. It's just – it's insanity. And so earlier in December when the APSE, the Associated Press sports editors, said, hey, we're, uh, we're acknowledging that you're legit. Like, we're sanctioning you. We're basically saying – That JohnConzano.com is legit, and in their eyes, it meant a lot to me. And uh, it was really cool early this week because, you know, the uh, annual writing contest for 2022. I guess, um, you know, they asked, they solicited entries, and so I, you know, I leaned on some of the editors that I've worked with over the years that are now retired, and said, "Hey, can you look at my work? Can you help me pick stuff out? Because I'm a terrible judge of." what I write, everything I hate everything I write by the end of it. Like anybody who has created anything, whether you're an artist, a mechanic, a landscape designer, uh, if you are an interior designer, by the time you have poured over and poured over and poured over uh, your craft, by the end of it, all you see are the flaws, right? So, So I'm a terrible judge of my own work. Like I know my work is good. I know it's sourced, but I'm a terrible judge within that realm of going, hey, what is the best, what is not? So I pass that on to people that I trust and go, hey, here's like 20 or 30 things that I wrote. You tell me what uh, what you think, you know, deserves to be in this contest and and put up against the best sports writing in America. And it was interesting to me as I went through my possible entries, and I'm only saying this to you because I want to tell you, like, I want, I want you to know how the sausage is made. But it was interesting to me to note that it wasn't like four or five or six things that I thought, Hey, I'm really proud of this. Like, I can put this forth and enter this in a contest against the people who are the best in this business anywhere in the country. It was, uh, I had a much deeper pool. It was 20 or 30. I had a much more difficult time discerning, like, hey, uh, what should stand out or what does stand out. And you know what that's evidence of for me? It's evidence that I'm having fun. It's evidence that uh, it's there's joy in the work. I have found that joy. And anybody who's out there who maybe came through the pandemic like I did, where you were kind of, you know, maybe alone with your work more than you were used to, hell, the game stopped. What, what, what sports writing became and what this radio show became during, you know, March and April and May and June of 2020 was um, a lot of, hey, what do we talk about? And it turns out I had plenty to talk about and really enjoyed the last year of getting back to games and getting back to the stadium. And and frankly, when USC and UCLA defected, being able to cut through the crap, take out my machete and basically cut through the mess and get to the idea that, hey, nobody else in this conference is really leaving right now. The athletic directors are galvanized. They were all caught off guard and surprised. I still believe that UCLA's decision to go to the Big Ten was rooted in maybe some selfish interests by some individual parties who were involved at UCLA and not the greater good of the student body and the athletic department. Hell, we're going to find that out as these teams begin to travel. But as I began to cut through this stuff, I realized pretty quickly that there was a thirst and an appetite from the public on knowing what exactly was going on and what wasn't. People were looking for something to trust amid and it makes sense, amid anxiety, amid frustration, amid a lot of misinformation. We're all kind of going, "Hey, what do we trust? What really matters?" And uh, I gotta, I gotta say, like, I don't know if I'm gonna win anything in this contest. It's not why you get in this business. I had a, a mentor of mine, the great late Charlie Waters, who worked at the L.A. Times magazine and later mentored me at one of my newspaper stops. He told me one time. He said, "Hey, this isn't why you get in the business, but if they're handing out awards, sure." I'll take one. Like, you know, that's kind of the mentality I have. But the bigger takeaway that I had was the victory that I think we all can celebrate in knowing that we're not going to be part of that misinformation cycles out there. This radio show is going to feed you what is going on. You know if something, if breaking news happens or there's uncertainty or something going on with Oregon or Oregon State or Washington or Washington State or the Pac-12 or, or the Blazers or Major League Baseball or the Timbers or Thorns, you know where to come. You know to come here. You know, I was in Costco not that long ago. And I'm checking out a Costco, and this Costco worker says, Hey, Gonzalo. And I fist-bumped him. And he says, You know what? He says, When something happens, I always turn on your radio show. And I said, Why? And he says, Because I want to know what's really going on. And I love that. That means the world to me. It means more to me than, in, than winning some award or winning some contest. But it means the world to me. And so I didn't want to come on today's show. And do a whole radio show about the Pac-Twelve or the Blazers or whatever's going on in the world with the NFL playoffs coming this weekend and all that stuff without telling you how grateful I am that you are here. And this isn't me like as a flight attendant on Southwest Airlines telling you, hey, I know you have options. Thanks for choosing and going through the motions. No, it's it's heartfelt. It means a lot to me that you make this show part of your day. So thank you. Stay tuned. Got more ahead. <coughs>
0: B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth.
1: I grew up a huge San Francisco 49ers fan. I mean, I'm talking era of joe montana uh young joe montana coming in replacing steve de the niners were like two and fourteen the first year i started rooting for them and then they were six and ten the next year and then the very next year they went on to win the super bowl beating the cincinnati Bengals in the pontiac silver dome in super bowl 16 uh if you're a football fan of my age you remember that um but I grew up rooting for those teams, living and dying with those teams. And even to this day, while Joe Montana is far away from the San Francisco 49ers of today, and in fact, 49ers of today don't even play in San Francisco, um, I still find myself partial to those teams. Anna's in studio. I got to know, Anna, growing up, you immigrated to the United States from Taiwan with your parents. How much was professional sports part of your life growing up, or looking back now, you you married a sports writer and radio show host. Does that make sense to you? I don't know that that necessarily makes sense, but
3: uh, if it had just been my parents, I wouldn't really have known anything about professional sports. I don't think that they paid attention to it. They were too busy, you know, as immigrants, just trying to keep a roof over our heads and keep us fed. But I think where... Sports came into play for me um, later in life, and I mean more like as a seven, eight, nine year old was through my stepdad because he was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, and, uh, you know, moved out here to the Northwest and was always a Buffalo Bills fan, like diehard to this day, just a diehard Buffalo Bills fan, and then kind of adopted the Trailblazers as his team. So, you know, I have a lot of great memories of, you know, sitting in the living room, watching the Blazers with him, the TV on mute, Bill Shonley on the radio, and uh, rooting for the Blazers and putting rally caps on in the fourth quarter and being heartbroken (laughs) over and over again, you know. Um, So, I mean, those those are my professional sports memories. I really wish that growing up we had had – you know, the time and the resources to be able to go up and watch like a Seahawks game. But that never happened. I can count on one hand the number of Blazers games that uh, I could, you know, that our family could afford to go to um, before I became an adult. And usually if I did go to a Blazers fan, it was because I was going with like a family friend who had a spare ticket, you know, and and I got to be the guest.
1: I think... uh... At that time, when I was a kid, in in look, let's talk late 70s, early 80s, throughout the 80s, rooting for that team, it was a commitment to be a 49ers fan. And my family, on, on game days, on Sundays, you know, we only got two channels. And in some ways, I feel like kids today and families today have it easier, but then I start thinking about it. I think it's a lot more complicated to be a sports fan now. You have greater competition from youth sports that are going on that happen to be going on at the same time as uh, games are going on. Like a lot of families now uh, will be like traveling to play, go in volleyball tournaments or soccer tournaments or basketball tournaments, even on Saturdays and Sundays during the college football season and during the pro football season. So I think there's competition inherently with conflict on your family calendar. I also have a whole bunch of more offerings out there. Like, I was going to tell the story of, like, we only had two channels. We had NBC and we had ABC. And they came in clear. CBS, unfortunately, which had the rights to the NFC games during my childhood, was like, it snowed on every Sunday. It was snowy on our TV. We had the big old giant antenna on the roof of my parents' house. And uh, this was prior to even, like, some families had, like, a motor where they could pivot the antenna just to get it to come in just right. Like you could just have this big dial that was uh, on this box near your TV and you you turn the sundial and then the antenna would slowly turn on your roof it Had like a rotor on it, you know? Uh, but I was that motor as a kid. I would climb up on the roof of my parents' one-story house. Seemed like it was really tall at the time. Doesn't seem that way anymore. But I would climb up on the roof. I'd walk on the wood shingles and my... Dad would be in the living room watching the TV set, and my mom would be the relay person, and she'd be out on the deck in the backyard, and my dad would be, like, shouting to my mom, tell him to start turning it, and then, you know, I was, like, 11 years old. I'm, like, up on the roof performing manual labor. I'm turning the antenna manually with my hands very slowly, and my mom's going, hold it, hold it right there. Dad says, go back. Go back. And I have to turn it back two inches. But it was a commitment as a family to even be able to tune into the games. And 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 even people lived in an area where you could get the games, there was only three channels. We had NBC, we had ABC, we had CBS. And it, hopefully your team's game would be on. And that's why I, there are so many Seahawks fans in the Portland metropolitan area and in the state of Oregon. It's because the Seahawks got force-fed to those fans because it was the only game they could watch. Just like the Atlanta Braves and the Chicago Cubs became big deals in the 80s and the 90s as WGN and TBS became, uh, you know, they made them America's teams, so to speak, in baseball, uh, the networks got to pick who you rooted for. I mean, they force-fed you. And there were some Sundays where those games just didn't come in. No matter how hard I tried, no matter what I was doing, maybe there was a weather balloon up there, maybe it was just a bad weather day or bad reception day, um, the, the family then would pile into the car, the family car, and we'd, we'd motor down to the nearest pizza parlor that had the football game on. We'd order, like, a pepperoni pizza, and, you know, everybody gets soda or a glass of water, and we would sit there slowly eating our pizza, trying to milk it for, like, three hours of watching an NFL game. It was a commitment, man. And even to this day... I got a little joy the other day as one of our daughters said, hey, are we, you know, we're going to watch the Super Bowl, right? Like that brings memories to me. And I love that you have memories, you know, with your stepdad and the Buffalo Bills or even youth sports games. And I'm sure our listeners out there have their own memories of watching those things. Do you think it's harder in today's world to kind of foster those traditions or those habits that families used to have? Or is it different? or, Or what do you make of that?
3: I think it's harder because, like you said, there's more competition for the eyeballs, but I think it's totally possible. Like, I think we're doing it right now. You know, like, I I, 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 it surprises me because I guess I didn't expect at this stage in our life that, you know, with the kids being so young that we would become, like, avid football watchers. But I think in time, in the last year or so, it's something they've come to expect. Like, okay, this is what we're going to do in the fall And I guess the early part of the winter here um, or later part of the winter uh, on the weekends, like we're going to watch some football. We're going to have some snacks and we're going to discuss the game. And, you know, I realized in talking about this, too, that radio actually played a big role in my love for sports, particularly the Blazers, because it was through radio that I feel like I got to know the Blazers a little bit. I know this sounds ridiculous and silly, but uh are songs they, that they created with Busta Bucket and Rip City Rhapsody. And then with the advent of music videos and being able to see, like, Clyde Drexler and Kevin Duckworth and Jerome Kirsey singing those songs and kind of wearing silly outfits and wearing their hats sideways um, and singing and rapping those songs. Like, we all, growing up in the Portland area, knew the words to those songs and sang along when they came on the radio And that was just an added element of being able to watch the players on TV and feel like in some small way we knew who they were, we knew what they looked like when they were trying to be entertaining and silly in that way, and it connected me personally to the team that much more.
1: You brought back a memory. I I remember tuning in and watching like George Michael and the Sports Machine uh, at night on Sunday nights on one of the stations. And then I also remember on Saturday Night Live when the Chicago Bears in 1985 made an appearance on Saturday Night Live, and they did the Super Bowl shuffle. And those songs, as you look back, I mean, there's nothing to them. And in today's world, I can't imagine, like, the Eagles or the Cowboys or the Niners or Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs coming up with, like, a hokey song that they're going to perform together. No, nobody's doing that. Like, individually, they're all worried about their own brands. They're on TikTok or Instagram or doing whatever. Tom Brady's probably, um, you know, doing that more than others. But... Nobody as a team is coming up with like a rap, and Rip City Rhapsody and Bust a Bucket. I think we're in the wake of the Chicago Bears in 1985 making the Super Bowl Shuffle. William Perry, come on, Walter Payton singing, uh, making that a popular household thing. And and I do, and I look for those of you out there that are are listening to this. Like I do think these kinds of little traditions are are glue for families. And it made me happy when our middle daughter said, hey, are we going to watch the Super Bowl together? And not happy because she's into sports or happy because she's into a game, but I could see her little brain sort of formulating how this was all going to go down and who was going to be playing. She wanted to know, who, you know, are the 49ers, do they have a chance to get there? And, you know, who I thought was going to play in the game. And I said, I think 49ers and Chiefs. And she says, I think if the Niners get there, they win. And and so I just like that she's thinking ahead of the party that we're going to have for this Super Bowl that is still far on the horizon. I think that's all pretty cool and special. So, yes, I'm out here to tell you traditions are important. They're glue in your family. So, you know, if you don't have one or maybe, that you know, you're, you're searching for one, tune in to one of the weekend games. Gather your kids around. See what happens. Hell, don't have them climb on the roof to do that. Don't need anybody falling off the roof trying to fix the antenna. But, yeah, my parents put me up there, said, go risk your life. And hopefully we can watch uh, John Madden and Pat Summerall call the 49er game. Uh, Coming up, I love conspiracy theories. I know you do, too. Somebody was found alive that was presumed dead. We'll talk about it next.
0: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750
1: The Game. In the early part of the pandemic, I mentioned this the other day, there were two binge-worthy shows that came on. One of them was Michael Jordan documentary that, you know, The Last Dance, which was fantastic. And everybody watched it, and everybody tuned in, and I couldn't wait for the next episode. The other one was The Tiger King. And one of the characters on The Tiger King, Carol Baskin, I really would say, would you say she was the villain of that thing, or people just didn't like her? Both. She was the villain and people didn't like her. Okay, so Carol Baskin was uh, this character that was an animal rights activist and she had a nonprofit animal sanctuary in Florida and she got um, a lot of attention during this documentary and she was, uh, you know, one of the things that came up during the documentary was that her husband, Don, had disappeared. And the prevailing thought was... That Don had been murdered, possibly by Carol, and fed to the big cats. Now she had big cats. We're talking lions. We're talking tigers. We're talking about uh, Carol Baskin's former husband, Don. Everybody knew Don, who was watching the Tiger King. But what was what became amazing was, first of all, um, some people accused Carol of killing Don, murdering him. And feeding him to the cats was kind of the underlying presumption in this in this uh, documentary. Um, but it turns out, and he had been missing for five years. By the way, turns out that Don was just found alive and well. He was declared legally dead. He'd been missing for five years, and in the uh, in the uh, you know documentary that came out in the early part of the pandemic, um. It was kind of presumed that, you know, did you believe that she fed Don to the cats? Like, I think we were sitting on the sofa, and we were like, Don got fed to the cats. But it turns out Don's alive. He's well. He's in Costa Rica. And here's the other thing. These news outlets that all were all over the Tiger King, nobody bothered to report that Don was alive. Like, this isn't breaking news. Don was found alive. Insurance paid out on his death. Life insurance paid out. To Carol, now Don's alive. This is amazing news. Like, I don't know why I didn't leave the, leave the show with this. I'm so confused by this because
3: this is all coming out just now. Like, it's making headlines everywhere that this missing ex-husband was found in Costa Rica. But it's been actually a year since Carol Baskin herself revealed that... Uh, He's actually alive and well. So she did an interview in November of 2021. This is more than a year ago. And she did this interview on this talk show called This Morning, where she revealed that her ex, who was legally declared dead in 2002 after disappearing a few years before that, was actually alive and well. This, I'm, I'm, like, my mind is blown from this. I, I don't understand... How that little tidbit has escaped unnoticed by the rest
1: of us this entire time. Look, this is why I've been on Team Joe Exotic this whole time. Like, I, I, <laughs> I, I, look, there was something not right. Again, you've done documentaries. You know a good character when you see one in a documentary. We're often watching, you know, Last Chance You or, or, um, the, you know, the documentary about, the, uh, the the hitchhiker that had the hatchet in whatever documentary we're watching, um, you will often go, that's a great character. Like, you know in, in a documentary world, Anna, what makes a good character and what doesn't make a good character. Joe Exotic was fantastic as a character. Carol Baskins was, too, because she was unbelievable. Like, you know, you've done documentaries. Yeah, and
3: when you find somebody who is fascinating like that, it's like taking a ball of yarn and just slowly unraveling it for, for the viewer, uh, the producers of that Tiger King series were brilliant because they, like you said, not only had, you know, the, the guy, but they had Carol Baskin who they portrayed in their own ways as very sinister because she would say these outlandish things and there were particular devices that they used during the documentary with music and pauses and editing that made her sound even more sinister, probably than things that were initially just said straight out of her
4: mouth.
1: Let me ask you something. We were watching Last Chance You, and one of the car- one of the players on uh, the East Los Angeles College team um, was kind of a prima donna in the early episodes. And you made a comment that I thought was interesting as we were watching the documentary. You said, "Oh, I don't think the producers like this person." What did you mean by that? And when when other people are watching documentaries, how can you how can you spot those things?
3: Um, it's just little things that they include along the way that they could very easily leave on the cutting room floor. Um, But it's little mannerisms. It's things that are muttered under their breath when their mic is on, and maybe they've forgotten that the mic is on. I mean, you know, we've all seen reality TV, and we all, if you have, like, a a reasonable mind, you know that it's not fully reality. Like, there's just, there's a crafting that is taking place. Um, We've seen it with the Kardashians, obviously there's there's plot lines and the producers, you know, can either be very heavy-handed in trying to tell the arc of the story and you can almost feel it sometimes when they're trying to force a certain narrative just because of the sound bites they include or the shots that they use or the editing that's, you know, applied um or it, it's kind of refreshing to me actually when I see a documentary that is just a little bit more raw where you don't feel like the producing is heavy-handed
1: it's like okay it was kai the Hatchet-wielding hitchhiker, the, the Netflix documentary on that kid is out. And um, the thing that makes that thing go is he's a character. He was compelling. He, you didn't know what he was going to do. And the reality television producers thought, hey, here's a homeless person we could do a documentary on. And it was literally Kim Kardashian's own production people who said, hey, we've got Keeping Up with the Kardashians. We could do this whole hatchet-wielding hitchhiker guy thing and then though it it, one of the things the producers said on air was they said you know but this guy wasn't going to be up to do the scripted reality television thing that caught my ear how much of reality television do you think is scripted
3: oh my gosh so much of it i mean i you can tell like if you're watching it with any kind of like skeptical mind you can tell that the scenes are orchestrated the situations are heavily orchestrated and uh you know, it, it makes me actually uncomfortable. It's why I've stopped watching a lot of, like, the classic reality TV. I mean, it's fun to watch, and it's it's fun because it's sort of brainless, and it's easy to just kind of pass the time and wind down at the end of the night. But when you look at situations like the series Bling Empire, is that what it's called, Bling Empire? It's like crazy rich Asians but in reality TV form. Like, that entire series is so concocted and scripted and forced that I, I don't know that I'm that interested in continuing it because, like, I am fascinated by their lifestyles, but not fascinated enough to be like, you know, to suspend my reality into thinking that these things are actually happening in an organic way.
1: It's interesting, the the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on Sam Bowie. You remember the, the producers came here to the house and they wanted to, um, you know, they wanted somebody who would say that the Blazers shouldn't have picked Bowie. They should you know they should have gone with Michael Jordan. They you know and so that was kind of my role in that documentary is I was like, look, how how do you justify passing on the greatest basketball player who ever played? Yes, you had Clyde Drexler. Yes, you needed a big man. Yes, Bowie was that that guy, but how do you pass on that? But in the course of doing that, they started asking me questions about Bowie and I never saw him play. Like I wasn't here. I wasn't around. And I can remember like saying that to the producer and the guy said to me, you know, there's the, we have video of Bowie and he's falling and they needed the sound, they needed the audio of somebody saying he fell like a tree. Okay. So he said, can you just say the line, he fell like a tree. And I was like, I didn't like, I wasn't there. Like they eventually when I watched the documentary, I think someone else says it who actually was at the game, but it was like trying to orchestrate. Like, the producer had in his mind what he wanted from that scene, and he needed someone to say that Bowie fell like a tree. Like, it was like watching a tree fall when he got hurt. And and I was it was a little icky, that whole thing. But now that we see so much reality television, it's not that icky. Like, it's happening all over the place. And I think it's generally accepted that, the, you know, everybody kind of knows, like, you watched... MTV do it with, uh, you know, whatever that, what was it, House Party? What was MTV? What was their whole thing? Oh, Real World? Real World, yeah, sorry. You saw the real world, right? And then it It, it morphed into Big Brother. Then you had uh, Jersey Shore and all that stuff with, with uh, Snooki and everybody. And now the Kardashians, I think, have done it better than anybody because they have just capitalized on what do we want to portray? Let's script this out. And, you know, what? man out there can we this week <laughs> That's not untrue not untrue well i mean the men do not do well on that kardashian show not that i'm watching it but you know if you look at the men who are in contact with the kardashian family you know bruce jenner kanye chris Humphreys, lamar odom i mean it it i i'm i'm you know, like when we, I think we speculated Pete Davidson would be the next. You know, it would be they're going to move into comedians and entertainment and actors. Like I just, I think if Kim Kardashian or the Kardashian producers call you and they say, "Hey, listen, uh, you, you know, we want you want you to go on a date with one of them or whatever people do these days," and I say, I think you say no out of self preservation. I think that's how that one goes. Okay, what about the insurance company though? Aren't they going to want their life insurance money back they paid on Carol Baskin's husband? You are obsessing about this story. Uh, yeah, I mean, I,
3: I I have to. I feel like there's going to be some kind of like fraud charges, right? At some point in the
1: future. I'm no attorney. I think it, it, they might come for her too because I, I I looked at part of the interview. Yes, I'm into this, and she said that she knew he was in Costa Rica, and. He took a million dollars there, and she knew he wasn't doing well because she checked the bank account, and there was only $80,000 left. So apparently he had to come back to life because he was running out of money. That's why you come to this show. Leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth.
0: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The game.
1: years ago a guy became an internet sensation after he was filmed taking a nap at the biggest sporting event of the year. The Super Bowl. Um millions of people around the world, they tune in to watch the Super Bowl. This was uh in Miami. It was uh you know J-Lo and Shakira at halftime. The tickets were like seven thousand dollars a ticket and uh somebody took um some video footage of a guy who was snoozing in the stands and People uh, quickly dubbed it world's most expensive nap. It was uh, Carissa Maxwell who uh tweeted out a photo or a video of the guy sitting with his arms folded, his eyes closed, clearly sleeping through the Super Bowl, and it was like the first quarter of the Super Bowl, 49ers playing the Chiefs, and, you know, uh, this, this video got like 5 million views and like thousands of comments, and... You know, we're talking about a $7,000 nap or whatever you paid for that ticket or whatever. And um, by the way, um, she tried to walk up to the guy and introduce herself and get some information about him. But the guy was annoyed and didn't want to talk to her. No kidding. Probably hung over. Probably having a hard time keeping his eyes open because he had, you know, Super Bowl hangover during the game. But um, it, it made me think about people who in general this guy's not a, uh, a like an outlier like you see these videos every once in a while of somebody having an issue like that and somebody falling asleep but i don't understand it like i literally don't get the I, the, the concept of being at some event that you're paying $7000 to go sit and watch or being at the super bowl and it's during the game and you're not like phenomenally engaged in what's going or maybe you're not uh, able to just keep your eyes open, plain and simple. Like I just think it's such an easy thing to when you're at a sporting event, and you're at a venue of that kind. Just like, hey, get your eyes open and pay attention. And by the way, did he not have a friend who could tell him, "Hey, get your eyes open"? Like I don't understand that. I don't, I don't understand. Like sometimes I have trouble falling asleep. Period. Like in story, uh, and uh, I I can't imagine these the fans that are falling. I fall asleep in a movie. I've been in a movie theater. If the movie's bad, I'll fall asleep and drift off. But I've never been at a sporting event and literally drifted off or felt like, "Hey, I'm not. I, I just can't keep my eyes open." Like, there's always so much energy in the building. There's so much excitement. There's enthusiasm, and like, I just I can't imagine like being at a sporting event and having that same experience. Like the movie theater makes sense to me. Like it's dark in the theater. Um, you know, it's, generally you're you're going to a movie unless it's a matinee. Well, I guess you could take a nap in a matinee, but you're going to a movie at night. And so let's just say it's, you know, uh, some of the markers that tell your body sleep is coming are happening at the movie theater, aside from the bright screen and whatnot, but you're in a comfortable chair, the lights are going down. I get all that. I don't understand people who fall asleep at a sporting event. And I have people that, you know, every year you see it. You see videos of people falling asleep at a baseball game, falling asleep at an NFL game. Well, I saw a video this week. Um, of a Chargers fan who fell asleep at halftime of the Chargers game. Now, this it's a Barstool tweet, so it could be a faked video. But the video is of a fan, is a Chargers fan, he's in a Chargers jersey, looks like he's in a, his apartment, his living room, and he is taking a nap and his friend is waking him up and he's glancing up at the TV and, again, when he fell asleep, this was like a twenty seven nothing game or a twenty seven seven game or whatnot. He's waking up to 31-30 Jacksonville. It's like the worst nightmare ever. But again, could be faked. I don't know. It crossed my mind. But it got me thinking about people who fall asleep at sports events. Like I'm not talking about falling asleep in your living room while watching, you know, a mid season baseball game in the summer. I'm talking about falling nodding off at a game. Where you see a fan who's in like the 300 level or the upper deck of the stadium who is just you know hanging out at a NFL game or hanging out at a college football game and all of a sudden just can't keep his eyelids open and he's drifting off to sleep. It makes no sense to me. I don't relate to it, and I don't know why I got on this other than I saw uh, bro falling asleep at the uh, uh, on the barstool Twitter account wearing a Chargers jersey and waking up to a nightmare scenario. As his team is being eliminated. We talked about it yesterday. Brandon Staley doesn't even know how many games he's coached. He's coached 34 regular season games and one playoff game as the Chargers coach. And he came out saying, Hey, I've, I've only been the coach of this team for 25 games. And I'm like, dude, have you been asleep? Like, what is what has happened? You missed 10 or 11 games there? Hey, did you nod off on the sideline? Like, that's the only reasonable explanation other than maybe he's distracted and a little defensive. But yes, if you are nodding off at a sporting event, A live sporting event, and you can't keep your eyes open, like, you you might have a sleep condition, yes. If it's a medical condition, cool. If you're on a medication, I get it. But if you're just nodding off at a sporting event, you might want to go see a medical professional or decide to get yourself some sleep. Like, maybe you shouldn't be at the game if you can't keep your eyes open. I've never understood it. And, again, we've been talking in the last couple of few days about the cost of things, Uh, and I'm going to bring up a story in the next segment that will blow your mind, but we were talking about the 49ers-Cowboys game and, you know, the $1,400 tickets or the $1,100 tickets or how much money would people pay to go see a major sporting event. Um, If you're forking out that kind of money, you better bring some toothpicks to keep your eyelids up because you do not want to be nodding off at, you know, Uh, $100 a second or whatever it's costing people these days to attend live sporting events. Like, make sure you're well-rested. Your eyes don't divert from the action. You should not be getting up, walking around the stadium too much, missing the action. You're paying for that. Although I do believe a good walk around the stadium during the game is a a fun endeavor. Uh, But don't get me started on what happened to me at Fenway Park way back in the day. I'll tell that story another time. As Anna and I went to Fenway, she's nodding at me. Uh, and, uh, I, I just wanted to catch a foul ball, be at Fenway Park. And she's like, let's take a walk around. And so I did, I guess I'm telling the story. And, uh, there happened to be a guy in a, uh, in a wheelchair who was beside me. It was like a 20 something year old kid who was in a wheel. I remember saying to him when we got to the seats, Hey, uh, nothing personal, but if a foul ball comes our way, I'm going for the foul ball. I don't want you to be offended by how aggressively I go after the foul ball because I've never caught a foul ball at a sporting event. And he said, I haven't caught one either. And I said, may the best man win. We laughed about it. Well, Anna and I went and walked around Fenway Park that day, all those years ago. And uh, when I got back to the seat, the kid in the wheelchair was beside himself and people were buzzing about it. He said, when you left, they hit a foul ball our way, finally. And I was like, did you get it? And he said, no, but... Everybody was reaching over me. I couldn't get to it. And he said, but it literally hit on your seat and bounced in the air. It broke my heart. But it was a great walk around the stadium, wasn't it, Anna? Yeah, it sure was. All right, coming up, I'm going to tell a story about a big-ticket sporting event. We've been talking about the cost of doing business. We've been talking about what it costs to go see a live sporting event. But what about these auctions that take place? This is a charity auction I'm going to tell you about coming up where things got a little out of hand. It's a wild story about the cost of getting to a live sporting event and uh, maybe a conflux of, of things that came together to make it even more special. So coming up, you'll hear more about that. Plus, in the 5 o'clock hour, Sam Murrell, comedian, supposed to come along. John Wilner will be with us so much more ahead you got the bald face truth statewide on the bald face truth radio network leave it right here
0: back to the bald face truth with john canzano on 750 the game
1: I saw the craziest story last night, um, and it it involved soccer. I know we don't talk a whole bunch of soccer on this show, but this is interesting. Um, A soccer fan in Saudi Arabia paid $2.6 million for a VIP ticket to see Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi go head-to-head in Saudi Arabia. It's an exhibition match. It will take place today, and you've got... um, uh, a bunch of players from their respective clubs. But what they did with this with this uh, ticket was they created a quote-unquote beyond-imagination ticket for today's match that was auctioned off by the Saudi government entertainment arm that promised the winner the opportunity to meet Ronaldo and Messi as well as access the team dressing rooms and the trophy award they opened the bidding at two hundred sixty thousand dollars, very reasonable, and it eventually rose to two point six million dollars before it closed yesterday. The money raised will be donated to charity. Um, this match could be the last time that Ronaldo and Messi take the field together. They are uh, widely considered to be maybe the two of the best players in history, and uh, it's a friendly. It's a friendly. Uh, it also marks Ronaldo's first uh, soccer match since signing a contract worth $214 million a year with the Saudi Pro League. Um, he's 37, uh, and this ticket for 2.6 mil, you get a meet and greet. You get to go in the locker room, whatnot. Uh, we're out of hand. You mentioned yesterday on the show... As part of your 5 at 5, how expensive the Dallas Cowboys 49er playoff ticket was, Anna. It pales in comparison to the $2.6 million for today's match in Saudi Arabia.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, that makes the Cowboys and 49ers average ticket price of $1,156 seem like a bargain. I just don't... I have such a hard time, like, wrapping my head around that. That much money to watch one game... I don't care how much of a fan you are of either of those players. I can think of so many other ways to spend that money, but I guess I don't know. That's that's got to be like oil money, right? That's just money that's sitting around in somebody's, you know, uh, discretionary income.
1: Well, I think there's a there's a it, it, there's like this conflux of converging factors uh, involved in this one it's in Saudi Arabia where they're burning money like you know it, like there's some people there that apparently have some money to burn that uh, two it involves Messi and and Ronaldo who are like these generational players three you know damn well this was someone's kid that some saudi prince got you know hey you want to go meet these players it's like a meet and greet backstage 2.6 million dollars are you kidding me but it you know, the whole thing, I got to be honest, like the LIV golf theming into Pumpkin Ridge, that first, you know, stateside event that happened, the, um, the fact that, you know, the World Cup was in Qatar or Qatar and there was some issues there. We, you know, obviously we're talking about human rights stuff too. The whole thing doesn't feel right to me. You know, it just doesn't, it feels off to me. And even the fact that he's p- playing over there for $214 million a year, it's just, um, I'm uncomfortable with a part of this. And like the $2.6 million, that's a whole nother eye-popping thing on top of that. But by the way, it raises another question. Is there a musician living or dead? Is there a athlete living or dead? If you could have seen in their prime or a musician perform in their prime, I'm not saying that anybody should be paying $2.6 million, but is there somebody that you would be like, That's the person I would go all in trying to win the auction for if, you know, let's say you hit the lottery. You hit the Powerball, you have a chance to go get a meet-and-greet with Madonna. You have a chance to go Michael Jackson backstage in his prime. Michael Jordan, see him in his prime. Wayne Gretzky, Joe Montana. Who's that entertainer, actor, thespian? You know, could be Sean Connery doing a 007 movie. Who is it that, like, that, you know, all-inclusive experience... The beyond imagination experience. Where would you go with it?
3: Um, I think for me it would have to be a musician, not an athlete, and it would have to be. Uh, I would have to be able to take my mom, and I would have. I would have loved to have taken her to Elvis, or to watch the Beatles, just because they were both such like cultural phenomenons. That I. I mean, I don't know. I maybe it's. Maybe it's just the nostalgia of it. Maybe it's because I knew that, you know, there she was, like, growing up in Taiwan and living her life in Taiwan. And yet she was very aware of Elvis and the Beatles. And everyone around her was singing their songs. Like, that's so crazy to me. It's funny to me. We joke as a family because she sings, like, hey, Jude. And she says, hey, Judy. Like, when we sing karaoke at home. Um, but that was, it became a very much like a global phenomenon. Both of those, you know, performers. All
1: right. You can't, you you can't go Elvis or the Beatles. Which one is it?
3: Oh, uh, it would have, oh golly. I think, uh, I think it would be the Beatles. I think it would be the Beatles. Maybe. Yes.
1: Beatles. There's a gospel element though to Elvis in the performance. Anybody who's seen the movie that knows, understands like the influences that he drew upon, uh, there's, religious undertones there. And I, I think your mom would actually like that. But but you think the Beatles more?
3: Yeah, just because I think it was a part of her coming of age. I mean, don't get me wrong. She sang a lot of Elvis, too. Like, some of my earliest memories in childhood are her singing Elvis songs to me in broken English. It's, like, the craziest thing. Uh, you know, it's true. Um, so, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think for the craze, that was created around the Beatles and just the reaction that people in the crowds had to, you know, their performances. It's it's not like I would want to bring them back into today's world, because in today's world, they wouldn't be appreciated, right? And But I would love to be able to travel back in time and see them performing in their element, you know, back in the decade in which they became so big.
1: I never really got to see Joe Montana in person do his thing for the 49ers. I never got to see Willie Mays in the outfield for the Giants. I, you know, we, not, you know, I, I didn't get to see DiMaggio or uh, or Ted Williams or Lou Gehrig. And but what came to mind immediately for me were two things. It was either Michael Jackson uh, in his prime performing. He was such a good entertainer and so talented. And you don't really understand how talented Michael Jackson was until you like see the documentary that he was making towards the end of his life and realize that the guy was just genius as a musical performer and talent. Uh, the other one is Michael Jordan in his prime as a basketball player. I saw Jordan in person much later in his career. He was with the Wizards. He, you know, I was covering a Blazers-Wizards game. It was Michael Jordan's last appearance at what was then Rose Garden Arena. He was not quite the same dynamic player playing above the rim. He was still the competitor. He was still Michael Jordan. It was cool to see it, but it wasn't like Michael Jordan with the Bulls in his prime. And I remember two things from that game, uh, because I was sitting on press row down low back in the day before the NBA teams moved all the media members up into, like, the upper levels of the 100 section – They used to be right there on the court. You could, like, hear the squeak of the sneakers. You could hear the dialogue that was going on on the court. I remember um, being directly across the court from this stunning brunette who was sitting in the front row and was out of place, right? It was her kind of by herself. Maybe a friend was with her, and she was sitting there. And Michael Jordan was inbounding the ball, and she leaned into him. And I know she said this as he was inbounding the ball. And she said, I want you to take me home tonight. And I don't know if she knew him already or, you know, and he smiled and inbounded the ball, right? That was one thing I remember from that night. It wasn't about him, you know, making a bunch of shots or, you know, sticking his tongue out. and It wasn't that. It was her saying that. And then the second thing I remember, as the game ended, the final horn ended, I moved from press row to the tunnel where the players go through and they pass through to get to the locker room. I wanted that image, and I was writing about him in that game, but I wanted the image of him coming through the tunnel from the last time. Now, if we were in like a high-use cell phone, iPhone era, I would have videotaped that. It would have been an awesome thing, but I have it burned in my head. I remember Jordan coming off the court, coming through the tunnel, and he stopped in the tunnel, and he took the chewing gum that was in his mouth, and he took it, and he didn't throw it in the garbage can. He stuck it on the side of the garbage can. Like he didn't put his hand inside the garbage can and like dunk it. He just stuck his raw chewing gum right on the edge of the trash can. And I thought to myself, should I take that? Like, is that like, is that a piece of memorabilia or? And I just left it and walked away. But I wrote about it when I wrote about my column about the game. I talked about all the things. I talked about his last appearance, whatever. I talked about the woman who said, take me home tonight. I talked about the trash can and the gum or whatever. I love those details, but it's burned into my mind, and I wish I would, had seen Michael Jordan in his prime because I can guarantee you it wouldn't be chewing gum or some groupie that I, that I remember from the game. I would have remembered some iconic sports moment.
3: You could have his DNA if you had taken it. You could take that, and that could be one of those like random things that's auctioned off on Sotheby's. Michael
1: Jordan's DNA taken off a trash can. I don't think people would think highly of me.
3: That, that does make me wonder, though, like you've seen so many <laughs> athletic performances in your time. So you've been to the World Series, multiple World Series. You've been to multiple Olympics and, you know, you name it. Final fours all across the board. So what are the actual athletic performances that stick out to you in your decades of covering all these different sports?
1: I, I what immediately popped in my head was Usain Bolt running the hundred meters in Beijing and in Athens and winning that hundred meters and just running so fast. Seeing a human being go, move that fast was it was just dominant performance in the hundred meters. That popped into my head. Michael Phelps in the pool popped into my head. Um, uh, just seeing and and some of the other performances that like I don't even know the names of the competitors. Like I would show up to the Olympic venues early just to kind of watch. Like if I'm I'm there like I went to go see Rulon Gardner when he was he was wrestling for the final time. Okay, we all knew it was his final time. Bunch of American press show up to watch him wrestle. But it was the match before him that I left thinking about. The match before him was like it was these two wrestlers from like Eastern European countries and this, you know, one guy, the underdog, won and his coach picked him up and put him on his shoulders and ran around the arena with him on his shoulders and I was like it was one of the most emotional things I've ever seen. And that's why I say like nine Super Bowls, bunch of Final Fours, World Series, Kentucky Derby, Belmont, all that stuff I've seen. I still think the Summer Olympics and getting to see an athlete in the moment they've trained for their entire life and that culminating moment of their of their life uh, is, is unmatched. I, and so for people who are looking for that fix... I don't think you can get it in the NFL. I think it's, by the time you get to the Super Bowl, it's so corporate. World Series feels the same way. The college football playoff, give me a break. I mean, it's great, but, you know, we all saw, like, the Georgia TCU game. It didn't deliver, like, a special moment unless you were a Georgia fan. But I think the Summer Olympics, it delivers these amazing moments over and over and over again all day long. I want you to leave it here. Coming up, the 5 o'clock hour. So much ahead.
0: B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a Bald faced Truth.
1: The 5 o'clock hour is always the happy hour. I want to start with a story today, though, if I can, before I get into the 5 at 5. Uh, which is action-packed. But I want to start with a little story today. When I was a kid, I got a reminder this morning. When I was a kid, I was like 13, 14 years old. Eric Davis, remember Eric Davis, Cincinnati Reds outfielder? Looked like the second coming of Willie Mays. I mean, the guy was just, uh, he had power, he could run, he had a great arm. Like, I just remember getting Eric Davis rookie cards. I think it was like the 1985 Tops baseball card Eric Davis Uh, that was the card I was looking for I can remember some other um you know hot prospects around that time like Corey Snyder of the Cleveland Indians back then uh no longer the Indians but uh I can remember getting Eric Davis rookie cards man and just collecting those Eric Davis rookie cards because I thought Eric Davis was going to be Willie Mays and I even made a horrendous trade with one of my best friends Mike Some friend he was. He traded, I had a 1985 Roger Clemens rookie card. Oh, yeah, this is going to be painful. And I traded Eric Davis straight up for Roger Clemens. That's how much I believed in Eric Davis. We need to get Eric Davis on the show. And I can say, man, I was the kid. I was the guy who believed in you all those years ago. Uh, That leads us right into the five at five, the five biggest baddest stories going on in sports the five at five I'm gonna start with research Stadium the 162 million dollar West Side renovation project is now expected to finish at least two months before Oregon State's home opener against UC Davis coming up on September 9th Uh, Oregon State Athletic Director Scott Barnes gave a media tour of the project this week, updated the progress. Barnes said the construction of the west side should be completed in the middle of summer, well advanced in the home opener. I guess there have been some delays because of weather and because of fabrication of steel. But let's be real. This was a much-needed upgrade for Oregon State. Oregon State, uh, as you tour around the conference, like the coaches will tell you, the players will tell you, they had one of the worst visiting locker rooms in the Pac-12. And and I know people don't care about the visiting locker room. Think about that now with a transfer, transfer portal world. How important it is to not just have a nice locker room yourself, but a visiting locker room that suggests that you're worth a damn. And a stadium, frankly, that isn't half a stadium. Shout out to Bob DeCarolis. The former Oregon State athletic director, who started the racing Reaser project uh, all those years ago, and did the east side. Uh, that you know they they stopped, and you know the west side was put on hold, and now the west side Scott Barnes picking up the baton, finishing the job. As Reaser stadium will look like a full functional Pac-12 stadium this coming season. I also think it's going to be interesting to see the reaction from uh, places like. University of Oregon, Autzen Stadium, Uh, you know, it had its own expansion back in the day. Uh, Probably needs some upgrades. And I think if you're an Oregon fan, I bet you that the Ducks are looking over going, "Okay, maybe we need to go to more club seating. Maybe we need to go to more luxury seating, living room seating. Um, I think Oregon State has done it right from what I've seen. I've seen the virtual renderings. I frankly have walked around the construction site myself. I don't know if they want me to tell you that. But I I think it's going to be lights out when this thing opens next season. And I think a lot of other programs in the Pac-12 Conference are going to look at Oregon State and go, hey, why aren't we doing that? Second thing, number two in the five at five. How about former Washington State coach Nick Rolovich? He was on Fearless with Jason Whitlock. And uh, he told Whitlock that he's received calls about offensive coordinator opportunities. Remember, Rolovich was terminated for not complying with the state's vaccine mandate. Washington State terminated him. There's a pending lawsuit. Rolovich talked uh, candidly about being invited to come out and talk to uh, programs and then having the programs call back and say, hey, our administration doesn't want you anywhere near this. It's a really interesting dynamic. Look, I don't think it's necessarily that Nick Rolovich has a pending lawsuit against Washington State that's keeping other schools from hiring him i don't think it's even necessarily that he didn't want to take the vaccine that was his personal choice i think it's that rolovich is viewed as a very difficult person to deal with and i think administrators uh especially for a coordinator position are not going to crawl out on that limb and take on uh an employee that is potentially problematic and going to bring the wrong kind of attention to your university number three in our five at five let's go local how about West Lynn High School basketball star and Oregon Ducks signee Jackson Shellstead? He's skyrocketing up the updated Rivals rankings that came out today. Uh Shellstead has jumped up more than 30 spots in the 2023 rankings. Rivals unveiling its updated rankings this week, several players uh on the rise, but Shellstead who is uh now who was rated the number 62 overall prospect before the final update is now sitting at number 28 overall big takeaway here it's it's becoming difficult to ignore what jackson Shellstad is doing and dana altman university of oregon coach has to be thrilled about the development that the kid has already made it's following in the footsteps of peyton pritchard going from westland high school uh to the university of oregon i'm sure he's got Aspirations of playing in the NBA one day, but good on Jackson Schellstead. He's getting it done. If you want more on this story, Andrew Nemec of Scorebook Live had the details, scorebooklive.com. Moving on. World champion sprinter Usain Bolt is in the news. This is my number four story in the Five at Five. He has lost $12 million in a financial scam. His account, according to his lawyer, was intended to serve as a pension. He's an eight-time Olympic gold medalist. Uh, he is upset about this. He's lost millions of dollars. Last October, apparently, Bolt checked the balance, saw $12.7 million in his retirement count. Right now, there's only $12,000 left in the account. Distressing news. There'll be more on this. I'll talk about this more coming up, but uh, Usain Bolt trying to get his money back. Now, remember, he retired in 2017, and he, uh, he retired in a sport that, you know, it left him as a household name. Like, I think when you talk about Brazil and athletes, you talk about Pele. You talk about how, how popular Muhammad Ali was in that country. But Usain Bolt right there, he has that kind of status. It'll be interesting to see if he can get his money back. Finally, number five in the five at five. Yesterday, the Pac-12 Conference 2023 football schedule was released. And, of course, there was a lot of belly aching. But you know who's not belly aching? The University of Oregon ticket office. The Ducks got one of the more... Home-heavy schedule. Seven of their 12 games will be at Autzen Stadium next season, and there'll be some good ones. I have to think the Ducks are happy about this. Let's talk about their non-conference schedule. Portland State at home has some local appeal. Hawaii at home. Colorado and Coach Prime in the opener for the Pac-12 Conference at home. Who else comes to Autzen Stadium? Try Washington State on October 21st. Cal on November 4th. USC on November 11th. And the Civil War rivalry game on Black Friday, November 24th, is going to be at Autzen Stadium. Look, at the beginning of the last college football season, I kind of went around the conference and talked to ADs and talked to people uh, selling season tickets and raising money, and they told me that they felt like their season ticket sales in most places were soft. University of Utah uh, has a strong uh, season ticket fan base, but Uh, a a lot of the other universities, and Oregon State had half a stadium, but everybody else was kind of going, hey, uh, you know, sales are soft. I have to think Oregon is happy, if not thrilled, about seeing Portland State, Hawaii, Colorado, Washington State, Cal, USC, Oregon State. Very solid home schedule, has some local appeal, has the rivalry game, has Washington State coming to Autzen Stadium. Hell, USC on November 11th is circled on my calendar now. So if you're Rob Mullins, University of Oregon Athletic Director, you have to be lights out thrilled about what you're seeing. That is the five at five, the five biggest things going on in sports. Winding down, the story I want to go revisit is Nick Rolovich, the you know the former Washington State coach, the former Hawaii coach. Um, you know he's a little rough around the edges, and that has nothing to do with his stance about with the vaccine or not. I mean, there are lots of people who, who disagree over vaccine, masking, whatever. Okay, I don't want to get into that. But I do want to talk about why I think people won't hire Nick Rolovich. And something he said in his clip, I want to play it. Here's Jason Whitlock interviewing Washington State, former Washington State coach Nick Rolovich.
5: Think things have changed enough that you'll get another opportunity to coach in Division One Power 5? I don't know. I don't know. I, I would I would like to think so. Uh, I volunteered at the local high school in my town uh, this year. And it was, there was a purity to it. Um, luckily for me, I was able to make a little bit of money for a few years. I can hold off for a year or so. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they, they... – basically, I had colleges ask me, hey, you want to come in and, and clinic us on offense and talk, you know, in conference. I'm like, yeah, I'll come. I'm not doing anything. I got nothing to do. So, And then they call back, hey – administration don't want you coming around blah 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 and it's just people saying i want to hire you as oc uh gets to administration you ain't hiring them so it's just it's a it's, it's just a strange time do you think that resistance is at the pro level too the nfl is, you think opportunities there are blocked off for you I, I i don't have any reason to think that it is other than uh, maybe they don't want somebody to speak his mind. I don't know.
1: There's a few things to unpack in that little brief segment. One, I mean, you get an idea of who Nick Rolovich is and what he's about. Okay, immediately, that's clear. I don't want to debate that, but it's clear. Um, I also think that you know he makes the comment about he's made some money. He's made enough. He's made some money, so he can he can sit out a year. Like he's made enough money that he probably doesn't have to work again. And he's got a pending lawsuit against Washington state. He's probably going to element for or whatnot. But um, the the bigger thing I'm thinking about is I don't think he's really talking about the finances when he talks about sitting out a year. I think he's talking about as a coach in an ever evolving sport, you really can't afford to be away from the game for that long, especially the college game where you have NIL transfer portal, the landscape shifting Yes, you can be a good assistant coach who can call plays and he's got a great offensive mind. But if you are not in tune with what is going on with recruiting, if you are not in tune with what's going on with sort of the landscape of the NCAA and you can very quickly lose that, you're out of the game. So I think what Nick Rolovich is saying there is he felt like he had a year where he could take a year off. and It really wasn't about finances. I think it's about him being a marketable, valid potential hire as an offensive coordinator. Um, the other thing is, I just, I'll just i go back to what I said at the beginning of the 5 of 5. Like, I don't think this is at all about really his stance on the vaccine other than I think potential employers look at Nick Rolovich and go, this is going to be a guy who's tricky. Who, you know it, The juice is not worth the squeeze here, so to speak. Um, it, he's just an offensive coordinator. We're not talking about hiring a head coach, and I don't have to deal with the blowback. And so you get administrative blowback for a coach who's got a really good mind. Um, Nick Rolovich probably does have a future somewhere as a play caller in the NFL, maybe back in college football, but I think he's got some work to do. I want you to leave it here. Coming up, uh, John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, San Jose Mercury News. He and I sat down and kicked around uh, the Pac-12 schedule. You'll hear that coming up at 530. I want you here for it.
0: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
6: Reno is not my favorite. Florida is a mixed bag. You got Tampa is pretty cool, surprisingly. Naples, Florida is terrible. What, what's the matter with Naples? Vapid and rich, which is a bad combo. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rich is fine, but vapid and rich. And you know, they, uh, I bombed five straight nights in Naples. I, <laughs> I feel so low at the end of the week. This old man walks up to me and he goes, uh, you mumble too much. That's why no one laughed. <laughs> And I said, wow. I really hope you don't slip in the shower later. And uh, and he goes, what did you say? I was like, did I mumble? That's a bummer. That's... <laughs> he nailed us. It. It's me. No, Naples is tough, you know. Orlando is, you know, I just got COVID there. I'm lucky that's all I got.
1: That's comedian Sam Morel. He'll be in Portland at Revolution Hall February 4th, February 5th. He's also got a Netflix special that's out, and he's joining us now. Sam, thanks for making time.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: Give me an idea when you start out and you're you're just uploading stuff to YouTube and you know you wake up one day you're on Letterman you're on you're on with Trevor Noah like you know that leap it it looks astronomical but what did that feel like for you?
6: You know, I mean, it just it's I've been doing it a long time, so I think it just happens more gradually. That it's like it's like when you're a kid and you grow, you don't really feel yourself growing. People are just like, oh, you're taller now, you know?
1: Yeah. When you uh, when you are doing like you know. The, the Netflix shows now it it must feel like it was far away from the YouTube stuff. But how how has your process changed over the year as a comic, or are you it's still not the same that guy?
6: Far away, honestly. You know, I I, I still self produced the the Netflix one. I still shot it with my crew. I mean, I have done everything kind of my way. I don't I don't so it doesn't feel that far away. It's cool that it ends up on Netflix, but you know, I, I do it always with the goal of just reaching new people. That's really the goal, and YouTube been good to me i mean youtube was i i think i hit youtube at, at a good time because there weren't a ton of specials on there now there are so many i mean now it, every every everything's oversaturated tiktok youtube uh so I, it's harder to, to pop off one of those now i think
1: there's there's jokes and then there's delivery you do both well um you know what did you start off just writing or were you always performing
6: um it's a little bit of both, you know, you kind of have five minutes uh, of material, that's your first goal, you're like, I'm going to write five minutes of jokes, and then you're just kind of, alright, let me get to six, because there's some comics when they're starting out, they're like, you know, I am I can do an hour, and you watch them, you're like, you can't do five minutes well, but if you're bad, you think you could just do anything. I was so, I was bad, but I was also uh, not very confident, so... If you told me I was doing five minutes, I get off at like four forty five. You know, I, I wasn't doing even I was just like, let me just get whatever I can to work and build I'm with my friend Gary Veter who's, you know, opening for me on the tour right now and he when we were starting out he did all one liners and he still does short jokes. So I remember people would be like, How much time do you have? and I won't be like, I got forty minutes, I got forty five minutes Gary would be like, I have nineteen minutes, you know? <laughs> He'd time it to to the T. So uh yeah, I, I, I would perform but you know, with stand-up, when I started, I was a, I was in New Orleans when I started at uh, Tulane University. And I I, uh, I there weren't a lot of mics because Katrina had just hit. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm making Katrina about my open mic experience. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, but it, it was something on stage. And then in, in the summers or whatever, you know, when I went back to New York, I would get on stage so much. I would hand out flyers in the street. And I would go on stage a lot. And uh, so that really helped me you develop much more quickly just going on stage because you write and you perform differently, right? I mean, the goal is to be a little more conversational. And writing, it does feel a little bit more... There's something about it that it works early on, but if you want to grow, it's got to just sound more like you. So you just really have to just... You need a combination of writing and performing.
1: You're, you're, you've you launched a new podcast, Games With Names. you got Julian Edelman. Uh, people know him. Our audience knows him as a you know, Patriots receiver. What's that been like for you? And you got some big guests on that thing.
6: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, they're there for him. You know, we get a big football guest. They're not there for uh, comedian Sam Morell. So, you know, sometimes they're kind of looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? The best is like, you know, (laughs) Kurt Warner did not enjoy the amount of masturbation jokes I made. Uh, I was like, this guy does not like me. And Julian's like, yeah, he hates you. (laughs) So we'll get like an occasional uh, guest who's like, this guy – not a fan but then sometimes we've got people who are like you're shocked at how cool they are I mean uh you know Eli Manning for me that was a thrill because I'm such a big Giants fan so uh you know Peyton Manning was cool it's funny to see how these guys in retirement are so similar to how they are when they play I mean Peyton sent uh, uh Jules he sent a miss text for preparation and I, I I'm not even kidding it was like 15 paragraphs of preparation to the interview and you're like oh that's why he was one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time uh so it's interesting to see how these athlete guests approach everything
1: ricky williams we've had him on our show a number of times because he's always here with all the with all the dispensaries that are around he's always making like an yeah. appearance and promoting it so he he comes on he's i know i had no, you...
6: idea. I had no idea that guy liked marijuana that was crazy <laughs>
1: He's, he's become like the face of it here. But he's such he's the opposite of, of Manning, like with the prep. He just pops on and he kind of just wants to talk, and it's very free-flowing, and, and, and I like that. Sam Morel is our guest. He'll be at Revolution Hall. Uh, you can't get tickets for the Saturday show. If you want to get tickets for the Sunday show on February 5th, you better grab them now. You also can see his Netflix special, same time tomorrow. It's currently streaming. Uh, you know, some of the, my favorite stuff that I see of you is, is your handling of hecklers. You're good at that. Where does that come from?
6: Just experience. Uh, you know, we were talking about. You know, when you prepare something in your head, it would it would it wouldn't be it wouldn't ring true. People would be like, "What the hell is he doing?" You need to be uh, true to whatever moment you're in. So if someone says something to you, I think. Asking questions and being kind of calm with the heckler is the best way to go. Because they'll hang themselves. You don't really have to do that much. Uh, They're not used to this. I am used to this. I have a mic. They don't. It's not a fair fight. I mean, I almost feel bad posting some of these because this is like a UFC fighter just like, you know, beating (laughs) the crap out of some dude in the bar. This is what I do. So, uh, but then I also do crowd work. I'm I'm not that mean to hecklers. That's the thing is I'm I'm pretty. I try to be playful with them and have fun with it because I'm. When you're a young comic, you're just doing hell gig after hell gig, so you're almost like a, a dog that, like you know, and it was just like punching you in the face. So you'll bite, you'll bite that guy quickly. You'll bite anyone, right? But when you're doing good gigs, it happens rarely. The crowd's on your side. It's just a different vibe, you know.
1: And I'm always surprised at what what the people in the crowd will share with you because, like you, you know, one guy, Me
6: too. Yeah,
1: like one guy Me said too. he he had a baby, but he found out it wasn't his. And yeah. and you're just, you're just kind of <laughs> smiled and everybody knew where you were going. It was brilliant.
6: Well, we know what's beautiful about that moment is like, I think people share something dark about their lives sometimes because they're ready to laugh at it. And there's something kind of, there's like humility and there's something kind of uh, really special about that, that this terrible thing happened. He, a baby comes out. It's a it's a black baby. So he's like, oh, it's not my baby. <laughs> my wife's cheating on me. Uh, and he shared that because he was like, I'm at a point in my life where I, I'm ready to laugh at this. So that's good. That's a good thing. You're laughing because I think it's part of right? you, right?
1: You get probably a lot of young comics who will walk, come to see you or maybe reach out to you for advice. I know I've got a couple of friends who are trying to do some open mic and stand up but what would you tell young people who are listening to this who who want to follow your path i think you
6: know look at comics that you like and try to and try to see what their trajectory was and try to uh try to write a lot i mean writing is so important getting on stage is so important that combination is huge i think a lot of comics can blow up a little more quickly now than they did when i started because you know when i started it was a VHS tape you'd record on, or maybe a DVD. Uh, and now you can send like, dude, we didn't send links. Think about how that's how long ago I started stand up. You didn't send a YouTube link. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I would ma- I would go to the post office. I would. You know, it was. It's hilarious to think about now. But uh, you know, you comics post so much early on, and I always think of like, you know, maybe just get good first. Uh, you're so new. You're like I look back at stuff that I posted not that long ago, and I hate. So it's funny, you know, when you're doing it one, but if you're brand new, you're really going to hate it. But that's part of growing, and I think uh, I get it. You can make a living more quickly at this than, uh, you know, back in the day. But um, the writing and the performing combination is everything. Uh, But social media will get the people out, So and, and there's ways to circumvent the industry that, you know, there weren't when I started. When I started, it was literally all... Comedy Central, Late Night, and the funny thing is, we're all fighting to get on Late Night, and then you get on, and you're like, this didn't help. (laughs) You know, so, uh, well, there's uh, there's 40,000 eyeballs, cool. Uh, So, you really just need to get good, because most of what you get in this business is through comics. I did my first theater tour uh, show in New Orleans last night, and, and Amy Schumer and her husband were at my show, and Amy was like, you used to open for me in theaters. like." And I was like, oh, yeah, Amy helped me so much. Like, People help you. Comics help you more than the industry will help you. So be good to other comics. Write a lot. Uh, and perform a lot. And that's really that's the only thing you can do, you know? So, so, I- do what's in your control is my point, I guess. I just gave you the most long-winded explanation of work your butt off, and it's all in your control. So, you know... So hold yourself accountable. This isn't a team sport. This, is, this isn't basketball. This is tennis. This is on you.
1: Love that. I think that's great advice. Sam Morrell, Revolution Hall, February 5th. Get your tickets. Check out his next Netflix special. And, uh, Julian Edelman, Games with Names is the name of that one. Sam, thank you for joining us. appreciate your time, man.
6: Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on the show.
1: There's Sam Morrell, comedian. He'll be at Revolution Hall on February 5th. John Willard and I kick around the Pac-12 schedule. What did we see after further examination? Coming up next. Back to the bald-faced
0: truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: John Wilner and I host a podcast called Conzano and Wilner, the podcast. Makes sense, right? Uh, we talk a lot about the Pac-12 conference, obviously, and the going-ons of the conference. Is it the going-ons or the goings-on? I don't know. We talk about the Pac-12. Um, on our episode this week, we discussed the Pac-12 conference schedule released. I encourage you to listen to that full episode on SoundCloud, Google Play. Apple Podcast, wherever you can get a podcast, you can check that out. But uh, here's a snippet of our conversation because we turned the topic to whether the Pac-12 is making a mistake by, again, playing a nine-game conference schedule versus going to eight games like the SEC and the ACC. And John Wilner and I talked about it in depth. Here's that conversation. Now, we got to talk about something that's overarching here, too, because... There's been uh, a big push to move from nine conference games down to eight. This schedule, again, has nine conference games. Um, I'm told that a couple of the conference members uh, were not thrilled about trying to find a fourth non-conference opponent. Um, Some members have expressed openly, like Arizona State has talked openly about how difficult it is for them to buy opponents and get people to come play them. Uh, especially if they want a home game, and where do you stand on that? You know, it's still on the table for 2024. The analytics and data people say it's
4: it's ridiculous that the conference is still at eight versus nine. But what what's your takeaway there? My takeaway is that unless they can schedule a series against the ACC, it's a non-starter because the TV networks aren't going to pay them for a lesser quality if you remove that ninth conference game and it turns into a group of 5 or an FCS cupcake you're not going to get as much money from uh, from TV so they don't really have a choice unless they can arrange some kind of scheduling deal with the ACC I don't know where things stand on that exactly but to me that dictates everything because if there's no if there's no power 5 opponent filling that spot that has been vacated by a Pac-12 opponent, you've got a lesser product. And it's hard to find games anyhow, like you were saying, and it's even harder without BYU around. I, I get back to BYU, but they were the perfect scheduling partner for the Pac-12. It was like a conference game, but it wasn't a conference game, and BYU had tons of flexibility. And now that they're off the table, really, it, it's the dynamics have changed for the Pac-12 in terms of non-conference schedules. Now,
1: I am told they, that there has been talk about adding a crossover series with the ACC, but why go that big, Wilner? Why, why not approach uh, the Big Sky Conference and go, look, we're going to do what the SEC does. Uh, we're going to play, apologies to my Big Sky friends, we're going to play a Patsy, uh, and we're going to block out you know Week 10 or Week 11, and everybody's going to enjoy a non-conference home game that'll be a
4: payday game against a Big Sky member. Shoot some holes in that one. All right, so I'm ESPN and I say, "Oh, Oregon is not going to be playing Utah this year. Instead, Oregon is going to be playing Eastern Washington." All right, well, I'm I'm giving you less money. Mm. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. You're removing uh and obviously not every Pac-12 game is is like Oregon Utah, but they are more valuable in general than non-conference games against Big Sky opponents or or even Mountain West opponents, to be honest. That's the thing. Is it's it's a Evaluation discussion with the with the TV networks, and I think that there's going to be less money available if they do something like that.
1: Yeah, it could be. I mean that 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 could be exactly what happens. Plus, you're going to have to pay those big sky members, and I and I know not everybody's thrilled about writing a check to pick up those
4: games. They'd rather be well, and those collecting checks are check. going up. Yeah, those are getting much more expensive. And part of that's because the SEC and the Big Ten have got tons of money, right? So they can afford to pay. Uh, I mean, Cal paid Notre Dame two million bucks basically. This uh, I mean, Notre Dame paid paid Cal two million bucks this past season. But you know, you got Auburn doling out one point five million here, and you got Ohio State doling out one point seven there for these group of five and FCS teams. The Pac twelve schools can't afford to do that, but the market for those games is is increasing, and that's makes it an economic decision for the Pac twelve.
1: Yeah, when you look at those payday games, you know uh, Alabama approached. Portland State uh, recently, or you know, and tried to talk about it. But, um, you know, Portland State asked for $1.7 million to play that game. And Alabama kind of walked away going, hey, that's too rich for our blood. But, you know, that's kind of what has happened here. Uh, the Vikings got $500,000 to play at Washington. They got 435000 to play at San Jose State next season. Um, you know, uh, they'll play Oregon this coming season. They're getting 575000 for that game. I'm looking at the figures here. And, and in 2024, they'll get five sixty-three from Washington state. And guess what? That's a bargain because those, those numbers are pushing towards a million dollars for
4: those payday games. Yeah. And they're, I think they're even above a million for, you know, Big Ten and, and SEC schools because the FCS teams know that those schools can pay, can pay it. And the thing is that those games are important for the, college sports industry because of I mean you could explain better than I can what those games mean for Portland State's budget, right? I mean that has to be a huge chunk of their operating budget, what they get from from those uh, you know, the payday games.
1: Yeah, and I think um it, there's some problems there that I think are gonna need to be unpacked, but the big picture is, Wilner, they're at an inherent disadvantage. There will be uh, you know, five or six conference teams, depending if you're talking Pac twelve or Pac Ten they will have an extra loss because of this, because they're playing an extra conference game versus some of their peers.
4: Yeah, and it certainly has hurt the conference, right, with the playoff and all that. But I think expansion of the playoff is going to, you know, reduce the impact of, a, of a, an extra loss for some teams, right, because, you know, you win the Pac-12, you're basically guaranteed to get in. Uh, so that that will have an impact, the, the expansion of the playoff. But let's say the Pac-12 were to go down to eight, okay, in 2024. But let's also say that the SEC goes up to nine because once Texas and Oklahoma, whether they join it in 24 or 25, once Texas and Oklahoma are in the SEC, they got to play nine games because you can't have a 16-team conference mm-hmm. where you're only playing eight league games or you're going to go a decade without playing somebody in the other division. So let's say the SEC all of a sudden goes to nine. Does the Pac-12 want to be playing eight if the SEC and Big Ten are playing nine? I think that the 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 optics of that would look bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe they're just waiting for that to rectify itself. But I still think, look, it's not going to affect your conference champions' chances in most years to get into the playoff. But now we're looking at at-large teams, and anytime you throw extra losses into the mix, and I look over and Alabama and Georgia are playing Troy. And Kent State, like, you know, I, I you know, there's an issue there when, you know, co- here comes week 11 uh, in the 2025 season and Washington and Utah are playing and Oregon, uh, you, you know, is is playing Colorado and Coach Prime's got it dialed in. Let's see what Alabama and Georgia are doing this week. Oh, no, it's not. It's, I just think in the end they've got to look at it, and, I, and I'm sure they're consulting with some of the – data and analytics people who are looking at this uh but i think there's a there's a disadvantage right now until the sec moves to nine games um let me ask you a question you can only go to one game in person in the 2023 pac 12 football season where is john wilner sitting and watching a game in person oh that's
4: a good question um (laughs) <laughs> well if it was non non-con- non-conference game I would go to uh Colorado and Nebraska because I just think the those those pac 10 fans may not realize Colorado and Nebraska they hate each other I mean the buffs from the big 12 the Buffs uh that's their biggest enemy so to me that would be an incredible scene at Folsom Field for Nebraska uh you know it's Sanders' first home game and you're basically your arch rival coming in. Now if it's if you're talking about conference games, I would uh I would think long and hard about USC at Utah. Um or I'm sorry, Utah at USC, which interestingly, you know, that's a tough game for the Trojans. It's after the trip to Notre Dame. So they gotta go to South Bend and then they come back and play Utah. Meanwhile, Utah will have just been playing Cal. So that'll be an interesting little dynamic. But I would think long and hard about either Oregon-Washington or or USC-Utah. What about you? I'd I go to that Friday night game at Reser Stadium.
1: Utah's going to play at Oregon State in that newly renovated stadium on that Friday night. I think the atmosphere will be fantastic. I think Oregon State is going to be not sneaky good. Like, they're not sneaking up on anybody right now. But I think in the early part of the conference season, that is the game because I think – you're looking at two contenders playing each other. Uh, as the season moves on, uh, it's the Oregon USC game for me, and then the non-conference games—not as sexy as they've been in other years. And you know, I'll, so I'd go to the uh, Utah Florida game. It's going to be on a Thursday or a Friday in week one. I'm leaning towards that being a Thursday game. I think you know Kyle Whittingham likes to play the Thursday games. I think a TV partner will have a say in that, of course, but. I think that's going to end up being a Thursday night in week one. I think Utah hosting Florida, Rice-Eccles Stadium, huge atmosphere.
4: Oh, yeah, that'll be great. Uh, Huge game for Utah, obviously, because they lost it this past season, and that had certainly had implications for the conference. Uh, To me, I think you you would also think Washington at Michigan State, just because you know that will be uh, a little bit of a revenge game for, for Michigan State. And Washington has got, you know, that's a potentially a playoff team. So the toughest non-conference game for them is going to be a huge one in terms of whether they can, uh, make a, you know, get through the season with either one or zero losses, which is what you need to do. Did, I was you, looking after you mentioned that Oregon state game, I was looking, they could very well be four and zero when yeah. Utah comes yeah. to town.
1: Yeah. I think that it's, that's set up for the week five primetime game. It's a Friday night game and it'll be a, it'll be a big one. Let me ask you this, uh, Schedule comes out. You look at it. Did it change who you would have picked to be your conference champion? Is it still to be to be determined? You know, did it change your mind? Did the schedule change
4: your mind on anything, or did did it just make you sit forward and kind of pay attention? I mean, mostly it got me excited about the season because you know, know, it's hard to it's hard to get uh, too interested in the way the way Pac-12 basketball has started out here. It's not. uh, I don't really. Uh, expect a real uh, dramatic march, but uh, I, I wish the Pac-12 football season could start tomorrow. I think it's going to be fantastic, and it's the most anticipated, probably going to be the most anticipated Pac-12 football season in a decade, uh, but I would still, I'm go, rolling with the team uh, that I've been thinking about for a few weeks, which is Washington. I Even though they have a really tough November, uh, I think the Huskies are best set up to uh, to win the conference. I think there's How five about you? I think there's five
1: different teams that could win it and though I I actually looked at Washington's schedule late in the year and I thought uh, great opportunity but I saw Oregon go through that and I think that's going to be tricky for Washington down the stretch. I would be surprised if they could get through week 10 at USC, week 11 Utah at home, week 12 at Oregon State without tripping, uh, in some form or fashion, two of those three games on the road for Washington. So that did change my mind on them a little bit. Um, I, it made me feel a little better about Oregon state. I think their schedule is very balanced. You look at the late part of their season, they do play Washington at home and then at Oregon in uh back-to-back games. And they're, they're turning around and playing at Oregon on uh you know, a short week, it'll be a Friday game. But, uh, other than that, I like their schedule very balanced. Uh, and I felt pretty good about Oregon's schedule as well. It, you know they have separated out the Washington, the Utah, and the USC, and the Oregon State games. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna call it a week off, but there's a softer opponent in between each of those games, and so in a in a bye week in front of the Washington game. So I think it was pretty favorable, and then I, but I still would lean Utah until I see Cam Rising. Like I know he's not gonna play in spring ball. They they said that. You know his his injury will keep spring ball. But he will be ready for the opener. That's the latest on rising. But, uh, you know, until somebody knocks Utah out, and that could happen in week five at Oregon State, I got to lean into Utah and say, hey, they're the king until somebody knocks them off the throne.
4: Yeah, perfectly fair. Perfectly fair. And they should be, you know, they got the bye, then they got Cal before they play SC in Oregon uh, and Washington. in one. You know, that's four-week span. They got SC, Oregon, and Washington. That is going to decide so much about the season. That's my
1: conversation, or at least part of it, with John Wilner. You want the rest of it? Oh, that's there's a whole bunch more. You can grab the podcast. Konzano and Wilner, the podcast. Subscribe to that as well. I want you to leave it locked in here. We have so much more ahead on this great Thursday.
0: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Konzano on 750 The Game.
1: next right here on 750 the game in portland you can leave your dial locked in right where it is is peter sampson and the pulse will be next uh peter's always got great stuff he comes out of the gates firing i always love the beginning of the show because he hits the ground running and if you haven't heard peter sampson yet i want you to stick around right here on 750 the game coming up in just a few minutes top of the hour uh tomorrow's radio show tomorrow's bald face truth radio show will be live From Arizona State's campus, Uh, Coach Bobby Hurley is supposed to join us on the show. Arizona State's playing UCLA tonight in Tempe. Bobby Hurley on the show tomorrow as the BFT is going on the road. We're taking a roadie. We're going where the college basketball action is as UCLA uh, has been playing terrific, obviously, uh, a program that the Pac-12 expects to be relevant and impactful, and uh, they will be playing an Arizona State team that has been very good in conference play conference has been a bit of a roller derby. Oregon losing to Utah badly, or excuse me, losing to Colorado badly, then beating Utah, then looking terrible, then beating Arizona, and uh, a lot of up and down, a lot of back and forth. Washington State beats Arizona, uh, and, and then can't beat anybody else. Like It's just been wild, but Arizona State has been really, really good in a season in which Bobby Hurley has needed Arizona State to be really good. So we will hit the ground and talk some Pac-12 basketball, basketball up close and personal tomorrow as this show continues to get out and uh, see and go where the stories are. Uh, for those of you interested in reading me, you can read me at Uh If you're tuned into that, you, uh, you know that you're getting stuff you can't get anywhere else. You're getting sourced, in-depth content that uh, you can't find anywhere else. And I appreciate those of you who have supported the independent endeavor and allow me to do those things, like get out and... Uh, cover things across the Pac-12 footprint and, you know, go see Utah play USC and go see Arizona State playing, uh, you know, an important home game against UCLA and going to talk to Bobby Hurley in person and bring this show and bring you along for the ride. So uh, if you already are subscribed to johnconzano.com, fist bump to you. If you want to get a free subscription or a paid subscription, whatever works for you works for me. Just check it out. Go to johnconzano.com. All right, so before before we get going here, I want to recap what we did on today's show. Hode Rubino joined us to talk about Arizona State football and Arizona State basketball early in the show. And I know I've been all over Arizona State today, but that's kind of like the theme as we talk and we, uh, you know, delve into some different things. But, you know, we yesterday it was, we talked about Utah and we went to Salt Lake City and you know, we're, we're obviously going to get knee-deep on Oregon and Oregon State as these college football and basketball seasons, uh, you know, football approaches and basketball uh, get serious. But uh, Ravino was fantastic. If you missed that interview, it's a great glimpse into Kenny Dellingham's, uh, you know, the beginning of his tenure in Tempe. So give a listen to that. Uh, also on the show, Anna, man, we talked about the 49ers. We talked about the playoffs. We talked about Carol Baskin's husband. Come on, back from the dead? Are you kidding me? Like, that was... Tiger King, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. We also talked about fans who fall asleep during sporting events. Now, don't at me, and I don't want a video of somebody falling asleep to this radio show. I don't ever want that. Like, Patrick Mahomes would have been offended. to See that fan at that Super Bowl in, you know, early 2020, 49ers playing the Chiefs. Uh, see that fan fall asleep in Miami at Hard Rock Stadium or whatever that was called. But for $7,000, keep your eyes open when you're at a sporting event. We also talked about the incredible price of a ticket to see Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi play a soccer match against each other. $2.6 million. Okay. You're buying that ticket. You better not be falling asleep at the soccer match. That's all I got to say about that. Also, you heard from John Wilner. We kicked around the Pac-12 schedule in the last segment. Uh, Wilner is fantastic. And, uh, Having a lot of fun with him, doing a podcast with him and, uh, you know, really diving into the Pac-12 and the beat in general. It's been a lot of fun to kick that all around. Uh, All right. So we will be live tomorrow from Arizona State's campus. We're going to take you where the sunshine is and see, you know, who else we can get on the show. You know, maybe Kenny Dillingham makes an appearance. Maybe somebody else. Who knows? We'll be in Arizona, though, tomorrow as this show goes on the road. Uh, All right, for those of you who are already um, diehard listeners of this show, you heard me earlier in the show give kind of a, hey, fist bump to you, fantastic that you are here and part of this radio audience. I just want you to know how much I appreciate you being out there. Uh, I said it in hour number one, it means a lot to me. I know you have choices. I, you know, not in that corny, hokey Southwest Airlines, thanks for flying us, I know you have a choice, not in that thing, not in that vein, but I know you've got options, and I know you're busy. We're all busy, and it just means a lot to me. When I meet you, uh, you know, Anna and I were out the other night, and uh, the server at the restaurant was like, excuse me, like, are you John? And he's a listener of the show. I mean, it means the world to me when I meet people who listen to the show, because I gotta be honest with you, so, like, in the last couple of years, being in studio in the pandemic, it's been a little isolating. It's probably been isolating for everybody in their own jobs and in their own livelihoods. It's great to get out and see people. It's great that you're listening, and and I appreciate that a lot of you continue to share this show with your friends and family. This audience is an army. The advertisers know it, and I appreciate that you're here for it. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time. Stick around. Peter Sampson right here on 750 The Game. The Pulse is next.